Hey, this is Chris Lockwood, and you're listening to the Chris Lockwood Podcast, Alive. Welcome again to the Chris Lockwood Podcast. I am, that's right, your host, Chris Lockwood. And this is a big deal because this is podcast number one. This is the first of hopefully many episodes where we have the privilege of hearing from people just like you and me who are seeking, learning, growing, striving to better understand just what it means to be fully alive and how that translates in the day-to-day. So first off, I just got to say, thank you so much for stopping by. I hope you like what you hear. I hope you share it with others, and I hope you come back, and I hope that you're just simply inspired to make the most of your life. It's okay. You've got to be asking, I'm sure, Chris, why the heck are you starting a podcast? Well, a couple of years ago, I really struggled with depression. I left the band that I'd started 10 years prior, and the no-end uphill battle of the music industry had really just taken its toll on me. So after a long time of prayer and counsel, I came to grips with the fact that leaving the band was strangely enough the wisest thing to do. And in leaving, I discovered that my identity was completely wrapped up in that which I had just left. So I found myself wrestling with, who the heck am I? What am I here for? What do I do now? Does any of this really even matter? And all of this was happening right as my wife and I were about to have our third child. So take the pressures of life, paying bills, no stable career, and a great lack of purpose and confidence, then throw a baby in the mix, and you have one beat up and stressed out guy. But what was cool was that I somehow stumbled into some really great people who through podcasting were doing really great work and simply inspiring and helping people. And I just got hooked. I honestly never thought that podcasting could be so effective, but clearly I was proven otherwise because (laughs) here I am. So after the last couple of years, I thought I'd give it a go. Uh, In the world of social media, there's so much junk floating around that does more harm than good. People tearing down one another, useless opinionated blogs, and so on. And so I just thought I'd do something that's more about bringing people together uh, rather than drawing more lines in the sand. Uh, The reality is that we're all just humans trying to make the very best of what we've been given. We're all on journeys, and we all have personal experiences where we gain perspective and learn. And I really feel that if we'll just take the time to listen, really listen, we might actually learn something from one another, as well as appreciate others for who they are rather than who they're not. Hopefully this podcast will be inspiring to you as we listen to people open up and share the story of their lives with us. So, on that note, here we go. My first guest is my friend Ed Litton. Little secret, he's a pastor of a thriving church in Mobile, Alabama. But listen, don't let the title pastor turn you off if that's not your thing. You really need to listen to his story. You might actually be surprised in what you hear. We had a great time together. From a drunken father to a hotel full of prostitutes, from the brokenness of losing a soulmate, to the joy of fatherhood, if I had to sum this man's story up into one word, it would be redemption. 
even when you feel at the end of your rope, know that all is not lost. Hope you enjoy. Pastor Ed, we're rolling. <laughs> so this is the first podcast. You are, you are my first. That's amazing. You, you of everybody on earth that I know. I, I'm so <laughs> which is, overwhelmed. Which is so many. Honored. So, hey, I want to say. Stunned. Thank you. You should be. You should be. <laughs> I, I want to say thank you. First off, for doing it, and um, and also taking me to lunch. And I think this would be an appropriate time uh, to let you know that I, in the recent years, am completely vegetarian. But just for you, I ate Fusagli's chicken. <laughs> so I seduced you back to the dark side. Yeah. So should I? Um, sh- should well, let me I just get say up? the chicken was probably raised in this area. Okay. His name was Bob, and he had a good life. <laughs> Uh, if that so, helps at all. Should I get up running towards the bathroom? Just, <laughs> just keep talking? Man, I, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's all good. You should have said something. No, it's all good. Because then I would have mocked you and made fun of you. For exactly. That's why I didn't do it. Because no. you're so good at that. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> like you are now. Right. Well, hey, I want to I, I just, again, thank you for being here and or letting me be here and, and doing this. And um, and so I just want to talk about your life. And um, I think everybody kind of has the ability to be a mentor in people's lives. And I think you have a lot to share. I personally know a good bit of your story, but not all of it. And, um, and so I just, I mean, you know, God willing, I get more than one person listening to this. Uh, hopefully that this, this will some way be inspiring to people. And so, um, so we're going to start as far, far back is where did you grow up? Where did it all start for you? Well, I, I was actually, um, born in East Tennessee. Okay. And it was quite by accident. My dad was uh, in the Navy, and uh, my grandmother moved to East Tennessee. So my mom happened to be at home. My dad was out at sea uh, visiting her mother. And uh, so that's why it was, a, it was an accident of, of fate uh, or whatever. But uh, God clearly had a plan. But I was born in a place called Kingsport, Tennessee. Uh-huh. And that became the epicenter of our lives because my dad um, moved a lot in the Navy. And so we... we uh, had a very interesting life. I had a very colorful uh, parentage. Both of my parents, my dad especially, uh, uh, tragically, he was, he was a great guy, but he was tragically become an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had an amazing story. He was the youngest of uh, five boys, four boys, and six sisters. Mm-hmm. And so World War II broke out. All of his brothers went into the Army, Army Air Corps, and at, uh, I think, 15, he tried to join the Navy. Mm-hmm and uh, uh, got arrested by the FBI, sent him home. And then he um, finally succeeded, wound up turning 17 in combat in the South Pacific, and uh, just had the most colorful life. I tell people he's kind of a Forrest Gump-type character in that he shows up in some of the major events of history. He <laughs> fought in World War II. He was in China when it fell to the communists. Wow. They literally fought hand-to-hand combat to get American missionaries and citizens out of Shanghai is what it was called then. He wound up in the uh, Bikini Islands where they tested the atomic bomb, and he was part of the crews that would go on the ships and take instruments out that they had around. He was exposed oh, to radiation. Uh, he uh, was in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, I mean, the guy, he actually boarded a Russian freighter with a forty five. It's the only weapon they had. He carried it. It was a forty five, fully loaded, and uh, it was a tense time. But, I mean, and, and he lived that way, and, and he was a terrible alcoholic. Uh, he was a life-of-the-party kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved him except us at home. We, yeah. we were we were terrorized by yeah. him, and and I remember distinctly. It was a little boy. 
uh, my dad in a drunken rage. I was hiding in the closet while he just went through the house. And my mom just finally got to the point where she couldn't take that anymore. Yeah. And um, so she um, she left him, took my brother and I and left. And, and um, it, it, what I don't tell is the rest of the story was that uh, a guy in a grocery store who happened to be a preacher shared the gospel with my dad. Mm. And he had this job because his full-time Navy pay went for drugs and alcohol. He needed extra money for other things and taking care of us, and my mom worked full-time. But that man made a connection with my dad, built a relationship with him, and when his world fell apart, he asked us to take him to see this guy. And I was there. I was uh, probably seven years old at the time. I watched my dad get on his knees and put his faith in a, a, a Jewish Savior who died almost 2,000 years ago at the time, and um, he um, uh, stood up sober. And I tell people in the best way possible, my dad was radicalized by the gospel. Yeah. Now, some religions, if you get radicalized, you're blowing things up. Right. But actually, dad put things back together. He put mm-hmm. his marriage back together, put his family back together, and it was just a, you know, when Mount St. Helens in Washington in the 80s, early 80s, blew up, I forget, they said something like 150,000 homes could have been built from the timber that was destroyed. And and if you can imagine an explosion where 150,000 homes were created, that's what it felt like. Yeah. And uh, it was um, it was an awesome experience. It wasn't perfect. My dad didn't stop being who he was. Yeah. But my I would life, imagine he was rough around the edges just from the experiences he was having. To the day he died, he was yeah. rough around the edges. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but, but the reality was he, he was genuine. Yeah. And was one of the most winsome people, um, but that's that's that was the dramatic event in our lives that really um, set us off on a course that I'm still living out today. Yeah. So, East Tennessee, that all happened at seven years old, right? Yeah, we were actually living in Norfolk, Virginia when this happened because okay. he was in the Navy. Yeah, yeah. But my my family, my extended family, my mom's side, all lived in the Kingsport, Tennessee area. Okay. So, such a young age, like. Was that, what did that do do to you? Like, how were you, do you remember feelings you had? Or? Oh yeah, oh no, I remember. I remember it was, it was uh, exciting to see, you know, that we weren't going to divorce Dad yeah. and separate from him, and he became interested. I, I've always said he 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 barely knew there were a couple of short people living in the house with him, <laughs> but when when Jesus came into his life, it's like I became serious yeah. to him, and he became the kind of loving, instructive dad. I mean, he was still tough, but. He was all those years in the military and the background he had growing up in the Depression. But, boy, I knew my dad loved me. Yeah. And I knew that he cared about me being a man and being a leader. Yeah. And uh, so it was, uh, it was a pretty dramatic change that I saw. I, you asked what difference it made. I'm going to tell you the difference. Uh, in, in me as a child, I realized that there was something to this God mm-hmm. and that, that God is real. Yeah. And that he can intersect in people's lives in such a way that it changes people. Mm-hmm. And uh, and ultimately, that change uh, isn't just that my dad needed to be a better person. It, it, it was a redemptive change. Yeah. And it, there's it's one thing to say I'm gonna I'm gonna try to smoke less, drink less, do this more, uh, but it was a change from the heart where those desires were transformed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I deal a lot with addiction. Yeah. And uh, it's addictions in my DNA. It's in my family, my extended family, and it's um, it, it is a painful reality. Not all stories are like my dad's. Mm-hmm. And if you don't say that, you could give people a very twisted impression. 
that it's easy. Yeah. That there's an easy way. Yeah. Which I think all people who struggle with addiction are looking for that easy mm -hmm. way. It's just not there. Yeah. So. I mean, it kind of, I would imagine that kind of, uh, well, first off, you're a pastor. So little did you know you were kind of getting a snapshot of the rest of your life, you know, right. seeing, right. <laughs> seeing this happen. But, um, but this kind of throws you into the throes of real life and, you know, watching something so dramatic, like from him being a drunk. Right. Was he gone a lot? Like being in the Navy, was he gone a lot? Oh, yeah. Oh, he would go out to sea a lot. But uh, this was right during the Vietnam War, and he was about to get uh, sent to the Mekong Delta to run a gunboat. Okay. And that would probably be how he ended his career. At this point, he still had, I think he had 23 to 30 years in the Navy. And so uh, he was trying to make that decision. Mm -hmm. He probably would have gone had he not given his life to Christ. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he said, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. And he'd fought enough wars and... And he was more serious about raising my brother and I. Mm -hmm. And so that was, and so I actually went from that, talking about whiplash, I went from living in that world to my dad was transformed and, uh, and it, it totally strengthened their marriage. And my mom went through a transformation. Uh, I personally, as a child, put my faith and trust in Jesus. But then we, my dad bought a farm in East Tennessee. And I mean, that, that was, that's hilarious because here's a man who had never been on a farm and had no idea. He did it because my mom wanted to raise her sons on a farm. So we bought a farm. The story gets worse than that. It, we were there for about five years in this little idyllic place um, that uh, was cloistered from the rest of the turbulent 60s and early 70s. And then my mother becomes ill and the doctor says there's only one place that you can live. Now the farm was in East Tennessee. He said, there's only one place that's dry enough for your particular lung disorder, and it's a place called Tucson, Arizona. So we, we sold everything we had. It was like the Beverly Hillbillies. And we drove to Tucson, Arizona without a job. July of 1971, I had never experienced heat like this. And the only job my dad could get, and that was during a recession, things were tough, but the only job my dad could get was running a motel. Mm -hmm. And that motel had been a house of prostitution. So it was clear that God had radicalized, in a good way, my dad and had given him real-life experience in, the, in God's grace and redemption and then puts him in a place where he would then touch people's lives. And, and I will someday uh, possibly write a book about just the motel. Mm -hmm. The name of the street we lived on was called the Miracle Mile. <laughs> there's one in Vegas and there was one in Tucson. That's a book title. Yeah, there's a, a title <laughs> built in. And, uh, and so from, and I was 12 at the time, 12, 13, and so my teenage years were pretty much spent in one of the most uh, dangerous experiences you could possibly expose a teenager to. Mm -hmm. We went to church in a nice suburban area, and I, I couldn't figure out, I'm a little slow, I couldn't figure out why my teenage friends, their parents wouldn't let them come stay the night at my house. I was always invited to theirs, but I they oh, come stay, oh, no, we're not going to do that. You know, of course, checkout time was at noon. And, uh, so you're living... You're literally living in the hotel. Yeah, in a hotel. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, and everything happened daily. We, our, my adrenal glands got really active because we were always in some kind of dangerous situation. I mean, I was with my dad one night. He had to shoot a guy. And, I mean, it was just... It you was, had to shoot a guy? He did. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm glad he did. He's a better shot than <laughs> oh, I was at the time. He was still in the television. He shot him with a 12-gauge shotgun across the parking lot. Oh <laughs> Didn't kill him. The guy, you know, able to get away, but he left the television, which was good. Uh, so, uh, 
you know, you grow up in that kind of world, and it's hilarious looking back on it. But uh, at the time, and, and we also then got engaged because we started noticing a lot of drug dealers yeah. were going into Mexico, and they'd stay at our motel. It was this cheap little rundown motel. It was called the Hacienda. Was the name of it. it means big house in Spanish, and uh, and so they would go to the hacienda. So we contacted the police and said, "Hey, we're seeing a lot of drug dealing here." And they sent out undercover narcotics agents, who became our best friends. And they literally, it was like a precinct in our house, and and so we had places for them. They would eat at our dinner table, and they would stake out. And they started capturing these guys right and left, and um, and it was really dangerous. So here's here's the deal. I have a little bit of attention deficit disorder anyway. I'm trying to study in school. I can't study. I got narcs in my house. They all have long hair. They all have T-shirts on, and they're sitting around. They got their guns, you know, tucked in the back of their pants, and and they're doing these deals. And they're and, and they started including me in them. And it was absolutely my brother. And and my brother was a really good uh, electronics guy back then when everything was in tubes. And it was uh, we figured out, and this is right in the early '70s. Of course, we were inspired by Richard Nixon, you know, to, to tap people's phones. But in our motel, we had a phone system, and we figured out how to tap it. We would listen to phone calls, record their numbers, and hand them to the police. And they were busting not just the guys at the motel, but they were getting whole strings of people. Oh, my gosh. And they estimate, in, in about four and a half years' time, we captured over 14 tons of marijuana and other drugs. And we did it totally secret. And that's another thing that... You know, at that time, especially, you don't want to broadcast it because it gets you knocked off. Absolutely. So I've, I've had mean, an interesting like, life. No, and no I'm just right now, just I'm just a teenager, so. <laughs> You're not even 20. I mean, you know, we were just talking about one of your sons is um, a scriptwriter right. and how talented he is at it. <clears throat> I mean, that is a movie. Two kids helping the cops, bust the drug lord. I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> your, your life so far. Is a movie. Yeah, and and you in school it's kind of boring, you know, because people you just you're just the average guy, and everybody's talking about what they did, the football game they went to, and I want to say, well, you know, we got six tons, <laughs> nothing like a ton of marijuana in a room, that literally the the room you can picture a cheap motel room, the walls got bricks of marijuana going all the way to the ceiling, all the way around it, and there's a lid and a half on the on the cover of the bed, and you're just it was unbelievable, it, it really was unbelievable, and we we actually developed uh, a great love and respect for the police officers oh, yeah. who work undercover yeah. and the risks they take. I'll never forget one of the guys, his name was Bones, and he was the ugliest, long-haired, dirty guy you ever meet. And I'll never forget, we ran into him one day because my parents had to coach us. You'd, if you see them with their family, don't say anything to them. you blow their cover. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't believe it. His wife was beautiful. He had these beautiful kids. And, this, and I'm sitting there thinking... And I had to walk by him. He just looked at me like, man, don't blow my cover. It was really... <laughs> oh, my gosh. Bones. But it was... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stories like that, I can Good tell you. Grief. It was amazing. And again, I want to tell you, for me, uh, I saw the hand of God in that. Mm-hmm. I, I saw God using my parents in their brokenness. And, and the thing that was really amazing for me is that I, I had parents who never lived in denial that they were broken people. And they, as a matter of fact, they were proud that God had saved them out of their brokenness mm-hmm. and that he still redeems them. Yeah. And uh, so it really gave me an opportunity to, uh, to grow up around uh, knowing what it meant to be transparent. And I'll yeah. be honest with you, the churches we went to, 
uh, I didn't see that same transparency in other men. I didn't see it in my pastors, usually. Yeah. Um, not everyone, but, but most. But I did see it in my dad. Yeah. And What was their relationship like at this time? Were they... Oh, my folks? Mm-hmm. Oh, solid. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was... Uh, it was you're so, you're Sorry so about important. That. No, you're yeah, good. I, yeah, my phone and now my watch, <laughs> my iWatch or whatever we call it, Apple Watch. Uh, everything's going off. I apologize. But um, the um, my parents, when when my dad got saved, God healed their marriage. Yeah. And, I mean, still struggled. They, you know, they still fought and they still worked it out. But, yeah. Are you yeah. guys going to church during oh, yeah. this oh. whole Remember, After my dad gave his life to Christ, we never did not go to church. Yeah. I tell people I had a drug problem. My parents yeah. drug me to church Wednesday, Sunday, Sunday night, and uh, that was my drug problem. But, but I, did you guys go, and then you were kind of, because I, I picture, like, with the life that you're living, it's sort of, you have you go to church, you hear the sermon, but you'll walk away because no one really understands the life that you're living. Nah, that didn't point. affect us. Okay. okay. Now, we, we, we knew we were living an unusual life, yeah. but we enjoyed our church family. Our church family was real to us, mm-hmm. and they were our sanity. I mean, but we, you know, we just didn't go broadcast what we were doing. Yeah. Um, and, and my brother and I were old enough that we got that message and we were intrigued enough by the police nature of it and the, and the undercover nature of the man. We don't want to blow our cover because right. this is fun. Our cover. Yeah. <laughs> Your cover. We, we had a code name. <laughs> Which was? It was the birds. Oh my gosh. That's what they called us, <clears throat> the birds. When, when we left that motel, the city of Tucson, the, the mayor gave my dad a written accommodation that the, that the police department asked him to do. And we always joked, if anyone ever saw that, that would probably get him hit. But uh, it, was, uh, it, it, was, it was an interesting time. Okay, now my, my wife, for those who are listening, um, when I was in college, we're in Mobile, Alabama right now. When I was in college, I attended here, and then I left for a while out of town, came back, and ended up working here for four and a half years. Right. So we heard stories at Christmas parties from you, and I didn't remember this. I didn't realize you had a twin brother. No, I right? don't. He not, he's not your twin. He's not my twin. Okay, Joy said he was your twin. Okay, no, 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 no. I, I know what you're talking about. My mother dressed us like we were twins. Okay. We're, we're like Irish twins. Right. Uh, we were really, we were born <laughs> close to each other. I don't know what was going on. It's really not my business. I don't want to think about my mom and dad sexually. So, <laughs> oh, my so, gosh. So, but it's neither here nor there. I think, uh, I think that uh, the, that there's a story that she's probably telling. When, when we were young. At night? Yeah, my, yeah mother, okay. my mother dressed us in the same, pajama, same mm-hmm. kind of pajamas and... And I, my brother was very dutiful, firstborn. He would go to bed right when he's supposed to, 7, 30, 8 o'clock, whatever. I wouldn't. I'd come in. She'd be watching or trying to watch either Jack Parr or Johnny Carson. I'd all drink of water. And, I'm, you know, yeah. kids do that. But I was really bad at it. And she threatened me several times. And uh, not, not with lawsuits or anything, but she just threatened, I'm going to whip you if yeah. you do this again. Well, sure enough, I did it again. And she, I saw her coming after me with my dad's belt. I jumped. My dad was out at sea. I jumped over the bed in the dark, and I pushed my brother over to my side. He did <laughs> sleep. <laughs> she, she didn't even turn the light on, so she couldn't identify. And we were both the same size. I caught up quick. Right. She pulled back the blanket, grabbed his body ankles, and just wore him out. <laughs> he's was, dead asleep. Oh, he's dead asleep. <laughs> and so he, he never really forgave me for that. That was oh terrible. Oh, my gosh. Now, where, where is he? Uh, well... My brother passed away okay, okay. Uh, three years ago. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he was a very successful businessman in yeah. California. Did some motivational speaking, um, which always kind of surprised me because he wasn't a real 
outgoing type personality, right. but he did a great job at it. He uh, uh, was was pretty prominent out there in the self storage business. Yeah. He owned self storage places and wrote materials for helping people start their own self storage businesses. So Tom uh, did a great job. Interesting. Yeah. Were we all close growing up? We were growing up, but we drifted. Okay. After uh, after you know college. Yeah. Tom, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that, but that's funny. But my mother treated us and dressed us like twins. <laughs> Go figure, I don't know what that means. Oh my gosh, I'm picturing Christmas story, uh, like the pink, the big pink bunny. Yeah. I, I get accused of that because I kind of look like <clears throat> the, the main character, the boy on that. <laughs> and and you can, everybody says they can see me with glasses on. I didn't wear glasses at that time, but, oh, but that was me. Um, I had all kinds of fantasies about BB guns and... You name it. I bet, especially being around cops. When did um, when did the saga of the you know the um, the hotel and the drugs stuff happening and the cops stuff? When did that kind of fit, fade out? Uh, it, it probably in the mid seventies. I was probably sophomore in high school, junior okay. in high school, okay. and uh, my parents. And I'll just be honest with you: living that lifestyle for four or five years, uh, it is an adrenaline rush every day. Mm-hmm. You're you're under threat constantly. And I mean, at the same time, I tell you the humorous stories. We we saw some very painful realities of life. Mm. Uh, I knew prostitutes by name, mm. and, and 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 as a kid, and rationalizing, trying to rationalize why these people would do that. When when the movie Pretty Woman came out, I'll never forget. I knew that was a joke. Mm. Uh, I'm sure it's a good movie. I'm sure people love it as a movie, and Julia Roberts is a great actress. But. What I, what I knew was that I had never seen a real-life prostitute that, A, was that old, yeah. most die young, and uh, was that beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care how beautiful they are, the business destroys them. Yeah, I bet. And, and so I knew that, and they were, they were pimped by guys who were also stringing them out. But God seemed to have placed my family there for the purpose of getting the gospel into their lives. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget a great story. Um, my uh, my dad got a frantic phone call from California, and a poor dad had gotten a call from his daughter saying it was her goodbye, mm-hmm. and she was committing suicide, and said that uh, all he knew was, before she faded off and the phone went dead, that she was in a motel in Tucson, Arizona. Now, this is pre-internet. He couldn't do a Google search, but somehow he, he got a hold at a library or something, got a hold of a, a phone book and was calling every motel in Tucson, Arizona. That's a lot of motels. Wow. Happened to get to ours, and my dad had a Rolodex next to the switchboard, and he said, what's her name? Sure enough, it was there. Mm-hmm. My dad got to the room, and uh, one of the things I love the most about my dad was that he, he was a first responder mm-hmm. by nature. Yeah. Uh, and he knew CPR. He had been a fireman at one time. So he got over there, and basically the ambulance came. They got her to the hospital, pumped her stomach, and saved her life. Goodness gracious. And um, uh, probably toward the end of that week, um, the father shows up to get his daughter, and um, they were getting her things at our motel. And the dad, my dad and her father were together, and my mom was sitting with her, and my mom shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with her. Mm-hmm. And, and told her that the hope that she needs is not going to be found anywhere else except in Christ. Mm. And she put her faith and trust in Jesus. Mm. And it's funny, about a year or two later, I think it was two years later, we woke up one morning. It was a typical day. There was always something was going to happen. And there was this manila envelope taped to the front window of our motel. And we opened it up, and it was a picture of her, a wedding picture of her and her husband. And they were going to seminary, and they were passing through Tucson. 
and they wanted to say thank you. And she wrote the mm. story of how God had transformed her life. Wow. And, and so, you know, there were things like that that happened. That There was another time my grandmother, who was from East Tennessee, mm. all right, and is a, uh, was a very staunch religious person, yeah. okay? I mean, it's staunch. And she, she believed in a certain translation of the Bible. She believed that there's a certain kind of church you go to. Other churches, everybody was wrong but her. Right. It's and, the and, South. Yeah, yeah. God bless her. But, I mean, <laughs> I was a disappointment to her. And, <laughs> but, but, I mean, she, God bless her. I love her. But she's my grandmother. But she came out one time to see us when we were living at the motel. And she didn't want us moving to Arizona. But, so she wasn't for that. Finally, she came grudgingly. And living where we did, we knew that it would freak her out if she mm-hmm. saw what our oh, yeah. lifestyle was really like. So everybody's on their best behavior. Man, we've been praying, God, don't let the, you know, don't let the drunks and the pimps and the prostitutes and all these people show up. And, um, and so everything was going pretty good until Sunday morning. And she's leaving the next day. We're thinking, we're almost done. This is going to be awesome. Love Granny, but, you know. And, uh, and, and we pull out of the parking lot, and here comes a woman walking across the street. She has a white patent leather purse, white patent leather shoes and pearls on and nothing else. And, and you're going to church, and you're thinking, uh, this is, this is um, and, and her eyes, I'll never forget the look on her eyes, and everybody changes the subject. And we turned down, my dad hit the gas, and we got out of there. And uh, we, we, it's the thing we never spoke of. Yeah. Unreal. So that, was, that was unreal. What a life. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I mean, you're not even 20 yet. Right, right. And you've lived more than... Barely 15, and it was, uh, or 16, and it was... Um, it, it and, and at the same time, I got to tell you this: there was a lot of great life lessons there, but there were a lot of painful things, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the struggles, seeing the struggles of people's lives. But I, I got to tell you, I, I think um, God uses imperfect parents to help kids navigate the things of life. Mm-hmm. I think most of us as parents try to create a world where our kids are safe, right? And we want them to have wholesome experiences, and, and that's sane. Nobody wants their children to have intentionally unhealthy right. or unwholesome experiences. However, sometimes you're overwhelmed by reality, and you can't pick it. You, you can't stop it. You yeah. can't pick the best environment. And, and you just feel so horrible that your kids went through this. I want to promise you something. God is faithful. Mm. God is faithful. And he will even use our most painful experiences. Yeah. And so... In a lot of ways, uh, even back then, God was preparing me for things that I would inevitably face. And uh, I believe, I look back and it was like like layer upon layer of preparation for things that would be really serious trials yeah. uh, much later on in my life. You learn more in the hard times. You know, we hate them and no we try to protect ourselves from them, but it seems that we come out a little sharper on the other side of them. If it, doesn't, if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. Yeah, yeah. We all say um, well, I mean, that it's good segue into, you know, your, where you are now as pastor. You've been here for 22 years this summer. Just about. Mm-hmm. Which is amazing. <laughs> well, it's amazing that I could keep a job for 22 minutes. <laughs> One, that you wanted to stay here, and two, that they right, wanted you right. to stay here. So, I said, But when you were growing up, did you have a, like a dream job? Oh, sure. Other than this? Well, it's, it gets better than that. I, okay. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted okay. to be a radio personality. I wanted to do all sorts of things. Uh, anything but hard work and hard Because you labor. double majored in... I, I have a theater major and a religion major in college. Then I went on to seminary and went on and got my doctorate degree. So when were you, before or when you went into college, did you know what you were going to do? Or? No, I was, I was messed up. Let me, let me tell you what happened. About 17, and I think a lot of people 
uh, if you're raised in a, a religious environment, if you're raised in church, you tend to, to rebel against it, mm. and I did. Mm. Uh, matter of fact, I, what I rebelled against wasn't so much my parents. I rebelled against um, God. It's, at, at 17 years old, I really believe God called me to preach mm. and to be his, to be a pastor or whatever. And uh, I didn't want to do that. Mm. Uh, a, I didn't want him telling me what to do. I wanted to do my own yeah. thing. And, and B, I didn't want to do that. Every pastor I'd known at that point was boring and bored. Mm-hmm. And I go, oh, gee, yeah, yeah, let me sign up for that. But I had some abilities and, um, and, and skill to entertain people and to, to talk. And so I did some radio, and I thought acting is good. Let me tell you another reason acting was good. We, our strip called The Miracle Mile was right down the street from a very large Hilton Inn at the time that was the best motel in Tucson. And Tucson in the 60s and 70s made a lot of uh, Western films. Mm. And so actors would come and stay at that motel. It just so happened that one of the best restaurants on the Strip was right next door to us. Mm. And so it was nothing to sit in our glass lobby and see John Wayne walk by. Wow. To see... Paul Newman walked by to see lesser actors, and some of the some actors would stay with us. So yes, early on, I was inspired by film, and because you're, you're like right on top of it, right? Oh, like, I saw it all the time. It's only twenty feet away from me, <laughs> right? And actually, I would uh, I auditioned, I, I tried out for several different parts, uh-huh. and you know, for a kid, and never I never got one of those parts there. But uh, they would uh, rent some of the motels to to shoot scenes, and and I, it amazed me how a minute and a half to two minute scene, which is the average scene in a film. But about a minute and a half to two minutes would take literally all day to yeah. shoot. Yeah. And they would do it over and over. And that fascinated me. Filmmaking has always been fascinating mm-hmm. to me. So so th- th- that kind of captured my imagination. So was the religion in the theater major sort of like a safe sort no, of? No, that, no, there's a little bit more of the story. So go back. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me, I, I, I step back a little bit back early. When I sensed God was calling me, I was about to graduate from high school. I said, no, I want to go a different route. I want to be an actor. I want to do this, mm-hmm. and and so I ran, yeah. and I basically ran from God. Uh, my parents were strict enough and strong enough. I was in college, but it, they said if you're going to live at home, you're going to go to church. Yeah, that's what we require. And so I, I figured, well, I can do that. I could sleep, you know, take a nap during church. And actually, I found found a job because I, I had to work, and I found a job uh, working as a, a bellman at a hotel and a a shuttle driver, uh, a limo driver to the airport. And the guy was hiring me, needed me to work on Sundays. Mm-hmm. I go, perfect. This is perfect. I, I don't have to go to church now. And and so I went into him and I said, hey, listen, uh, I'll take this thing. Because my dad, and I was real real foolish to say this to my future boss. But I said, my old man wants me to go to church on Sunday. And so this will help me get out of that. He looked at me. He said, shut the door. <laughs> not, not a good moment. I shut the door. He looked at me. He said, starts crying. He said, uh, he said my mama used to make me go to church. She's, she's gone now. And he starts crying and says, here's what I'm going to do. You check in, you take the limo, you go to church, then you come back. But going to church is going to be a part of your job. It was terrible. So I had to go to church. And I couldn't get out of it. But what was crazy is that the church my parents went to at that time just got a brand new pastor. And he was young. He was on fire. Mm. I'm telling you, this guy had passion and believed what he was actually saying. Mm-hmm. And it totally blew my stereotype. And long story short, I went through a real painful process. I was in a relationship I, I should not have been in and, um, and uh, caught this girl at a, at, a, at a frat house and got in a fight. It was terrible. I, mean, I was messed up. I'd, I'd smoke a tree if I'd get it lit. I was doing whatever I could to disqualify myself. 
And I learned something very important about God, and, and that is that he is a God of grace, mm. and he is a God who pursues. Yeah. He mm-hmm. pursues you. Yeah. And somebody listening may think, well, I've never been pursued by God. You just don't know it. Yeah. But the longings in your heart didn't get there by accident. Mm. And, and so I was pursuing all these things to fill this emptiness and to try to do something with my life. But in fact, God had a label on me. He had a claim on me. I'll never forget, I was going home. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was going to get a gun. I was going to come back and kill somebody and then kill myself. I was just being real stupid. And I stopped at this light at the corner of First Avenue and Grant Road in Tucson, Arizona, and I couldn't stop crying. I mean, I was beat up. I was hurt, uh, betrayed. And, and I remember sitting there, and I heard something. I heard a voice inside of my head. And it was a simple but profound life-changing statement. This is what I believe God said to me. He just simply said, this is not what I planned for hmm. your life. This is not what I planned for your life. And when I heard that, I thought, I just broke. I said, you know what? Obviously, you're a better planner than I am. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't you just do whatever you want with me? Yeah. And something changed inside of me. And um, a lot of people have different kinds of stories, but my story was at that moment, I really believe uh, I surrendered to him. I said, I don't care. I'll do whatever. I'll clean toilets for you. Yeah. And uh, I felt forgiven. I felt clean. I felt released from a lot of stupid emotions and stupid behavior. And, uh, and it, it, was the, it was the beginning of a real serious change in my life. Yeah. And so. Goodness gracious. That's amazing. Hmm. I mean, because like, you know, whatever, you know, for people that might listen, like whether you believe like there's a God or, or whatever, right. what do they call it? The power or being, whatever. it's like, do you, really, do, you, do you really think that, that something would plan for you to have a gun in your hand ready to kill somebody and kill yourself or that anybody that loves you would want that for you and that that would be a road worth taking, you know? Yeah, but see, nobody winds up at a place like that. Um, uh, it's a series of decisions. You never start out saying, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind yeah. up in the gutter. Yeah. Uh, but you wind up there mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, there's a scripture that says the way of the transgressor is hard. And, and, and the truth is, it's not, it's not the amount of sin, it's not what I smoked, it's not who I slept with. It was the, the reality is that my heart was running from God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I discovered you can't. You can't run from him. He's a pursuing God. Mm-hmm. And he really does pursue us in his love, not his anger. Uh, what I was afraid of is that this was a God who, um, uh, who was angry because mm-hmm. I, I wasn't doing what he wanted me to do. Yeah. And um, and he wasn't. Yeah. Matter of fact, just listen to what I heard him say. Yeah. Now, I, I'm not elevating what I think I heard over what the Bible says, because I believe the Bible is God's word. Uh, but what I do say is that God's not limited in his ability to speak. Mm-hmm. And if he can create the world, if he created the world, he can creatively speak to us. Absolutely. And he caught me at a vulnerable moment where maybe I was listening for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I did. I heard him. And he just had to speak audibly. <laughs> well, I've had other experiences where I have, uh, I, I wish it had been audible. It was more powerful. And uh, it's, it's good. Back to the theater thing. How, how do you think theater prepared you, a theater major prepared you for ministry? Well, it's interesting you'd ask that because at the same time, I was not only studying theater at the University of Arizona, and then I worked at an ABC affiliate. The only job I could get was being a sports reporter. And so they hmm. taught me how to edit 16-millimeter film. Now, on the truck, we would go to do a story with, 
and I would cover some general news too if they if they were desperate. And uh, but it said video on the side. At that time, video was just starting to come out, yeah. and stations were just starting to invest in it. But not my station. We still had uh, 16 millimeter film, and we had these high speed processors. So I'd come in with a story. I had a deadline for the six o'clock news. Usually before five o'clock, I'd throw it to the guy. He would wind it up, and he would develop the film, throw it back at me, and I would put on white gloves and edit this thing because the sports part is about 20 minutes into the program. And so I'd have an extra 20 minutes, so I'd be sitting with a monitor of my uh, of the anchor, and I'd be editing this film. So it just it connected me once again. Acting has helped me uh, be very comfortable in front of people yeah. and to read an audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes I over-read audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had to learn not to do that, but, I, you know, uh, theater is interesting. Theater is huge. You have to, all your gestures have to be big. Right. Your voice has to be loud. And you yeah. have to project. Um, a film is a different story. Mm-hmm. A film is, especially with HD cameras and, and high definition, it, film is very tight and uh, it shows everything. Yeah, yeah. So, so you 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 feel uh, you know you, you're you're in the car. You have this moment of this isn't what I planned. When was the aha moment for you being a pastor? Like when did you go? Yeah, was, it, was it ministry that you felt like you need to be involved in just as a general thing, or did you know pastor was going to be your future? Um, <laughs> Those are two questions I know. But. No, it's good. It's it's good. No, it, it took a while, but I at first my whole focus was just being with him. Mm-hmm. Just okay, I'm yours. I'll do whatever. I'll clean toilets, and I did. I mm-hmm. started doing anything my pastor asked me to do. Uh, that young pastor I told you about became my mentor, and I I started. Um, I started my own little business at that time, so I had more time during the day, and I'd go by hang out at the church. Mm-hmm. And slowly, imperceivably to me, I found myself being drawn more and more. Uh, he gave me my first opportunity to preach, and uh, I, I would did. have loved to have been a fly on the wall. <laughs> I'm glad that that recording <laughs> has been destroyed. Uh, but but that was uh, that was the beginning point, and then uh, you know God just continued. Uh, I had to extend my education. And uh, I had to change the course of my education. It took me six years to get through college because of that interruption. And, and so uh, then I met my wife. We got married. And, uh, well, how old were you then at that point? You know? uh, Tammy and I got married. I was 21. Okay. And I turned 22 a couple months after we got married. Okay. She was exactly one year younger than me. And so uh, we met uh, at the University of Arizona in our church mm-hmm. and uh, fell in love. She's the love of my life. So... Okay, so when you're you're young, you sort of ignorantly anticipate and picture. Young and ignorant are often used together. <laughs> but to you can be ignorant and to old too. But, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you picture your career and your life looking a certain way. So stepping into the role of like leadership, shepherd of a church. Well, yeah, I always, but biggest... I always thought that was a vow of poverty. I thought, you know, there's no way I'll ever own a house. There's no way I'll ever, yeah. you know, have anything. Especially with your upbringing. Right, right. <laughs> but you know, I was comfortable with that. But like, what was what was the biggest um, like when you start? Uh, well, when was your first job? When, when as, a, as a pastor? When did when did how did, what was oh, that transition? Well, it was a youth. It was a youth pastor. Okay. But, but I've had a lot of jobs. My dad believed in work, and my dad and my brother and I were both hard workers. My brother was a real entrepreneur, and I, I have a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, but uh, so I've worked a lot of different things. Worked in television. Worked for laundry services. I've worked. Uh, I was a motel maid, yeah. <laughs> you could, uh, desk clerk, bellhop, taxi driver. I've done, I've done just about everything. I've worked in construction. I've, I've, I've done a lot. Pizza delivery, pizza making. Mm-hmm. Um, so your first church job though was my a first youth church minister. job was as a youth pastor okay. in uh, Glendale, Arizona. Okay, how far is that from Tucson? Uh, it's about an hour and a half. 
Did you? Did they call you like up? I was. Or did at, you? I'd gone to college in Phoenix at a school called Grand Canyon University, okay. and it was a real small, dinky little Baptist school at the time. And um, uh, there was a, a pastor there that needed a youth pastor. I saw want uh, want uh, ad on uh, a job ad at, at the school on a on a court board, and I called it, and that was my first church. It was called Apollo Baptist Church, which I always thought was interesting, a Baptist church named after a Greek god. Uh, but, I was thinking uh, Apollo from Rocky. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Indian. But, uh, yeah, Apollo uh, was my first church, and it was it was good. Tammy and I both uh, cut our ministry teeth there, and uh, sweet, sweet people, um, and uh, we loved our time there. Then we went to seminary, and we worked in a much larger church, there called uh, First Baptist Church of Euless, Texas. Okay. It's in the Mid-Cities area right next to the DFW airport. And then we went back to Tucson after seminary and we started a church. Mm-hmm. And that was your, was that your first pastor? It was my first church to pastor. Okay. Yeah. And it was called Mountain View. And uh, it, uh, we were there for seven years and it went from just myself, Tammy, and our firstborn child, Josh, uh, who was just a baby. Uh, we started that and, and it, it blew up. Yeah. Uh, and we were reaching a lot of people who had uh, who had never heard the gospel. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we just about wore ourselves out, but it was absolutely one of the most fun times of our life because <laughs> we knew God was working. Yeah. And for some reason, we were in a residential neighborhood, but we kept reaching bikers. And <laughs> it was just weird. These guys would pull up on these Harley Hogs. We had a whole section in the parking lot for Harley Hogs and Flatheads and... And uh, these guys were coming off of all kinds of stuff. And they would sit while I was preaching and open a big Diet Coke. You'd, you'd be real quiet. One of those moments while you're speaking, you'd hear a tss, yeah. You know, like that didn't go great. <laughs> and they would always walk in the door and go, man, that's a damn good sermon, brother. Ed. I'm telling you right now. I love it. <laughs> and you're going, whoa, that's awesome, man. It was funny. It's like, um, I've always admired how you've always, I didn't realize you were from East Tennessee at first, to be honest with you, until I started researching for this thing. And, um, so you being from the South a little bit, I was like, oh, okay. That, it makes sense why he can get along with the good old boys. But then I hear your story about the people you're around through right. your teens and stuff. I mean, it's it's amazing how you're I, – I, I fully understand now why you're able to connect with so many different shapes and sizes right. and backgrounds now. You know, yeah, that that's it, a pretty cool thing to be able to do. You know, it's interesting. My wife and I were talking about um, what we call missional or cultural IQ – there's a there's an IQ that people can have in relating to other people. Mm-hmm. There are some people that we would think were backward, but in fact they're just not comfortable around people from different cultures, mm-hmm. different races, different language groups. And uh, it was clear that I think looking back on it, God had a plan for making me more or raising my cultural IQ a little mm-hmm. bit. And it yeah. still has a lot to go. I'm not professing anything. But, you know, anybody that's going to be in some sort of leadership or somebody that wants to you know, um, inspire or pastor or lead people, like having the the experiences you've had of being able to, to have a relationship with people that, you know, right. are so different and um, <laughs> bikers. Right. You know, I oh. feel like most pastors, even specifically, people who are so, you know, um, uh, I mean, it's just a huge role to play in people's lives. Like, right. and, and a lot of times, like, I wonder if they're really prepared to do that and I hear your story and I go man it really sounds like you were prepared to actually lead people that are dealing with their junk and stuff right. because right. you're you grew up around with people and you know very well your dad was that and you were that right. too as well well and you, you you are a little more comfortable you're more acclimated to it 
I think it is clear that God was preparing, uh, preparing me for that. Um, and at the same time, I'm telling you, that's where it's at. Mm. It's, it's not being cloistered in some ivory tower. Yeah. And, and matter of fact, that was always my struggle educationally, that I, I did not want to go to seminary. I did not want to live in an ivory tower. Mm. And I never did. But I am thankful for my education. I tell people, get as much as you can, as long as you can. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and it's not the education level that has qualified me. I'm going to tell you what I think qualifies us for whatever we do in life. It's usually the most painful things in our life. Uh, it's the most difficult trials and overcoming and sometimes being overcome. Mm. Uh, but it is, it's, those are the things that really give us accreditation in life. Yeah. You're starting a church. It's basically an entrepreneur move. And I right. love entrepreneurs. Um, I've been one for the last 12 plus years. Do you, what, uh, what is it like starting something like that from scratch? It's scary. I bet. It is scary and you don't have a clue what you're doing. Yeah. I'll never forget the guy who enrolled me to do it and listed me to do it was what was it called a church planner specialist and he said uh, you're thought about uh, and and I really never had uh, but I could tell God was getting me ready for it and and I remember asking him how how do you do this he goes what do you mean how do you do this <laughs> I, I said well how do you start a church he goes what do you mean you just go preach the gospel love people tell them about Jesus I said that's it and he goes yeah it turns yeah, out there's, there's a nobody more there <laughs> yeah yeah uh, where do they come from but you know what I think that kind of ignorance and curiosity combined is what makes people successful. Mm. It's, we're not glorifying ignorance, but the truth is you don't have to know everything about something. Mm. What you do need is curiosity to ask questions. Curiosity also gives a sense of humility because you're saying, I'm an ignoramus. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. But it's something you feel is worthy or worthwhile. It's worth your life to do it. Yeah. And, and so... I don't know that a formal education can prepare people to be entrepreneurs or leaders, mm. for that matter. Uh, seminary did not teach me to be a leader. Uh, a, a man named Harry Litton taught me to be a leader. Mm. And other mentors of my life, Harry was my dad. But my dad was a natural-born leader, and he spotted leadership. Here's the other thing about him. He never graduated from high school, wow. but he, wrote, he, he talked incessantly about leadership. Mm. And from a military experience, you learn to appreciate good leaders. Mm. In, in the movie, uh, there's a series of television on HBO called Band of Brothers. Uh, there's a scene in the, um, in the forest when, um, in the Battle of the Bulge, where you have these hardened uh, 101st Airborne men who are, are pinned down fighting the Germans, and it's all true stuff, and there's this lieutenant who comes in and out of the scene. He's, he won't stay on the front lines, but he disappears. And he's serious. it's obvious he's having some serious mental mm -hmm. issues and, 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 and shock and awe from all that's happened. But, but it's interesting how all the men in that company look to the sergeant to lead. Hmm. They can't look to the guy who holds the position. Right. And this is what happens a lot in businesses. This is what happens a lot in churches, um, is that the official leader is not the leader. Uh, but it's, it's a sergeant. It's somebody like my dad. Right. Um, but who taught me great leadership principles. And I'm going to tell you, you can't have great leadership in any event, any venture of life without courage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's, it's not, you know, like you said, it's not, you know, knowledge is power is what they say, but it's also taking that knowledge and putting it into practice. It's the person that's brave or dumb enough to take the step forward, right? you know, get out front. Well, there's a lot of professors who are brilliant, mm -hmm. but they do not have the courage to step out and risk their own capital. Right to risk their own uh, reputation. Hmm. Um, 
and they find other ways to satisfy that longing, I suppose. But, but people who build things, people who start things, uh, even things that fail, uh, takes an amazing amount of courage. Mm. And, um, and, and the other thing, too, is, is for things that fail, it's getting back up and saying, let's try something different, or yeah. let's do this differently. Or, uh, and, and so history is replete with great examples and great biographies of people. And, and at the core, they had to have those leadership abilities. Um, and people ask me all the time, are leaders born or made? And I say, well, I've never met a leader who wasn't born. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and honestly, I don't know of a, of a single leader that wasn't made. So yeah. it's both. And I think um, the, if you'll look at the harshest circumstances of your life, those are the things that, um, <clears throat> that tend to make us. And, but at the end of the day, you've got to come back to the question of, am I, am, am I uh, acting in courage? Right. It's interesting, I think it was Churchill that said that, that courage is the sum of all character qualities mm-hmm. because it enables all the other character qualities. Mm-hmm. And, and so it is the sum of, uh, of, and my dad was that guy. Back in the motel days, I knew my dad was a man of courage. The first night, July the 1st, 1971, that we moved into the Hacienda Motel, it had been a house of prostitution run over by drug dealers. And, I mean, it was a rough place. And they, they decided, they, they had bought off every manager that had run the place up to us. They hadn't met Harry Litton. And <laughs> they, um, so they're pretty much in control. The inmates were in control. Uh, and they threw a pool party the first night we were there. And they were drunk. And I'll never forget, we were standing, I mean, I'm 12 years old. I'm looking out on the pool. And I've watched this guy, this huge guy, pick up a baby like a football and toss him mm. across the pool while some drunk guy dove to catch the baby. Oh, my gosh. And that was it. My dad grabbed a baseball bat because all of our stuff is still in storage. Our guns were in storage. He grabbed a baseball bat and weighed into these people. And, and next thing you know, people are diving, flying all over the place, running for their cars, running for their rooms. He emptied out the entire motel that night. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, and I'm sitting there watching that. And the movie had just come out, Walking Tall, Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a film that took place in West Tennessee, and this Buford Pussert character, who's the sheriff in McNary County, Tennessee, and it's a true story. But it was, I thought to myself, my dad's about five foot six. I go, there's walking short going out there right now, <laughs> and I mean, he did. Uh, the guy had more guts than anybody I've ever seen. Oh my god! I've watched him stand up to people. I've watched him. Uh, let me tell you a story. I told you about the Miracle Mile that we lived on. There was a barber shop. Uh, down uh, about a mile from our motel. And my dad, understand the time, all of my teenage friends had long, beautiful hair. And, and the Broadway play had just come out, so it was hair, hair everywhere. Mm-hmm. I wanted my hair to be long, you know, like any kid would. And uh, uh, my dad wouldn't, wouldn't hear of it. This was hippie talk. And, and so every week, it seemed, we were going into the Miracle Mile barbershop to get our hair cut. Right. Okay? So it was in the middle of winter, which meant the film companies were in town making movies. So there were a lot of famous people in town. One Saturday, we go in to the Miracle Mile Barbershop, and there's like six stools there with six barbers, and Tom was the owner. He was in the middle stool. And we had our place we always sat, and the, the dog-eared Field and Stream magazine that I'd looked at last Saturday was still dog-eared and waiting mm-hmm. for me. And I walk in, plop down, and I noticed there was something electric in the room. I mean, you just feel it. And, and, and my brother sat down, and all these other dads were on the edge of their seat, and they're all looking toward Tom's chair. And when I look up, I see the guy sitting in Tom's chair is a very famous actor. Yeah. And he's drunk. 
and everything, and, and he's entertaining everybody, but all of the words are foul. All the words are God this, Jesus this, F this. And, my, and I look out of the corner of my eye, my dad has not moved from the door. He's staring right at the guy. And I'm going, oh, God. No. <laughs> Don't do this. I said, Lord, strike my dad now with lightning. Because I know what's coming. I, I know this man. Yeah. I know what's coming. And my dad just engages. Now, I'm not suggesting this is a practice anybody should do. I'm just telling you who my dad was. <laughs> Give you some insight. But he, he, he looks at the guy and he said, uh, hey, buddy, I'm going to tell you something. He said, uh, and I, he wasn't planning to do this. And this, I don't, I do not believe this was out of any arrogance of my dad. It was just, my dad never got over the fact of God's grace mm-hmm. in his life. And he looked at the guy and he said, hey man, I want you to know something. I used to talk just like that. And he said, I used to drink like you're drunk right now. He said, but I want to tell you something. Jesus Christ set me free. And he said, you see those two kids down there? He said, I'm trying to raise them to be decent men. I'd appreciate it if you not use the name of my Savior in vain. Oh, I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm hiding behind my magazine. All these dads, the place filled dead silent. I mean, they, uh, it was unbelievable. And, the, and, and this guy says, well, I'll blank, blank you, and I'll kick your blank, blank right now. My dad says, well, let's go. <laughs> and, and I'm going, oh, no, Jesus, please. <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. If I could have, I would have run out. And, and I want to tell you the other thing, too. Is Dr. Spock, of course, in the early 60s, late 50s, wrote a, a book about how to raise. This was the absolutely... He, my dad broke all ten of Dr. Spock's commandments if he had them. And, uh, and, and so I'll never forget my dad looks at Tom, the barber, and it was my first experience with a boycott. My dad says, Tom, you either throw this man out or my boys and I are leaving and we'll find another barber shop. And the pathetic look on Tom's face, he looked at my dad and said, Harry, don't make me make that decision. And here's my dad. Now listen to this. You don't have to like what I'm telling you as a story. You don't have to think this is the right thing or wrong thing to do. Just hear this. Here's a leadership principle. My dad looked at him and said, Tom, you just made the decision. Mm. And he snapped his fingers. He said, come on, boys. And I mean like, like dogs. We jumped up. We were ready to get out of there, man. And, and all of a sudden, Tom stopped us. He ripped the, the, the apron off of the guy. Now, understand, he was halfway through the haircut. Rips the apron off the guy. He says, get out of my shop. I'm tired of your foul mouth, too. Well, this guy stumbles out. My dad sits down. We sit down. Because now we're committed, you know. We made Tom decide. <laughs> now we got to stay. And I mean, every dad's behind his magazine. It was like, though, we destroyed. My dad sucked all the oxygen out of the room in that barbershop. It was not a fun, pleasant place like it was when I walked <laughs> oh in. And I'll never forget that, that, that crazy story. I'll never forget that I looked down the street, and there's a, there's a very famous actor with half a haircut staggering down the street. And I knew, by definition, what a man was. Yeah, yeah. A man exercises courage at the most inconvenient mm-hmm. times. I'm gonna promise you, my dad wasn't wasn't trained and educated enough to say that morning. I, here, I'm gonna teach my boys a lesson. Yeah. But see, this is why fatherhood is so important because fathers spend time with their children, and what's in them rubs out on those kids, mm-hmm. and and that's why it's so important to spend time and to do life together mm. uh, because it's all about relationship. Yeah. And, you know, too many of us regret that we didn't make more time right. with our kids. And, and then, by God's grace, we get grandkids and get another shot at it. But, uh, uh, but the reality is uh, my dad taught me how to be a leader. Yeah. So what th- that applies in all of my life. Everything I've ever been a part of, um, working in churches, working in a denomination, being on boards, uh, it, there are always ample crisis situations that require leadership. Yeah. 
And I, whether I've always acted exactly like I should or not is questionable, but, but I never doubted mm. what a leader was. What a great legacy for him to have that you can, like, um, without hesitation, point to your father instead of somebody else, some other man or, you know, some famous person or a book you read. You know, you can say my dad. Because like you said, there's not a lot of kids that can say that, you know. Well, let me say this, too. I, I, I thank God for the books I've read. I thank God for the mentors, people who have been great leaders to mm-hmm. me. Because my dad wasn't a perfect leader. Right. And there are a lot of uh, there were a lot of failures in his life in leadership. Uh, he, I say a lot. There, there weren't a lot, but there were some. And... Uh, but I thank God for, for people, men and women, who exercise courageous leadership. Because yeah. our world seems to be losing that value. Um, we appreciate it when we see it, but we just don't see it right. yeah. very much. Now, I, we're sitting in a room full of books. Right. Um, I'm, I would imagine these are probably not all of the books <laughs> that you own. Right. I've got another room at my house. Oh, my gosh. So... Was your love for history after, uh, like, once you realized it was a learned skill and that you were going to be in leadership? Is that when your love for history kicked in, or uh, you or? know, no, not at all. Actually, I uh, when my dad was in the Navy, uh, I thought my dad loved history when mm-hmm. I was a kid. Turns out he didn't. It's just we would go to historic places because they didn't charge. And my dad <laughs> it's was free. We was, it was free, and he was broke, and we were poor, and uh, and so we would uh, we'd get in that '61 Chevy Impala and. We'd, I'd sleep in the back window. My brother would sleep on the, the soft part, and we would take off. We had no seatbelts. Put a brick in your lap, keep them flying yeah. across the, you know. But uh, we would, uh, we'd go to battlefields, and as a kid, I was the only one in my family who really did this, I, but I fell in love with history. Yeah. And I have a natural bent. Uh, my mind is like flypaper when it comes to history. I, I seldom forget details and facts. Uh, I see illustrations in, in history, and, and, and it turns out, that's one of the most boring subjects when you when you uh, poll people, ask them what was your worst subject. They'll say it's history. I hate history. I love history. Yeah. And uh, I have a friend who is a, a fiction writer, and she's a very successful fiction author. And I, I always make fun of her. I say, you know, it's really just gutless biography. Uh, you're, you're making these stories up, but it's really you just change the names because yeah. you don't have the courage to, to that it actually happened. <laughs> and, and that's actually biography at its best. I think. Um, I, I do. I have a tremendous passion uh, for history. I, I think it was Harry Truman that said, the only thing new is the history you have not learned. Mm. Yeah. And so. What's uh, been the biggest surprise uh, being a leader or a shepherd of people that you've, that you've had to face or, or that you learned while you're growing up, get, learn, getting into the position of leadership? Uh, well, let me, let me say something about history. I, I think um, a lot of people think history repeats itself, and it doesn't. Mm. I don't think history ever repeats itself because I think God is a creative God who doesn't make things cycle and, and repeat. We have cycles, don't misunderstand yeah. me, like we have weather cycles. But the reason history appears to repeat itself is because we make the same foolish mistakes right. because of our sinfulness. And we're all handicapped, if you will. Uh, that may not be a politically correct term, but we're handicapped by sin, and which means we tend to do things that we at the moment may think are wise, but they're tainted by our selfishness. Mm. But I, I think for me, um, coming to terms with the reality that all people, whether they are sinners or saints, are sinners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, We're all that, flawed somehow. And, and that I think it's not just my upbringing, but I've had to deal with that as an adult. I've had to, 
as a father, uh, as a husband, to say, you know what, we all struggle, and God, uh, God loves strugglers, mm-hmm. and He comes to the aid of strugglers, and He has grace for strugglers. What's the most rewarding thing about leadership for you? I, I think it's giving it away. I think giving to people uh, the freedom to fail, the freedom to succeed, to be the best as God made them to be, that they can be. I think, to me, uh, investing in people. Uh, Jesus had a radical view of, of relationships, and he gave himself completely to others. And I believe he expects us to to have strong, vital relationships, which means you're going to be disappointed, you're going to be hurt. You know, I tell people, uh, people are like porcupines trying to stay cold on a winter's night. We, mm. You can't get close to people and not get hurt no. and wounded. And and so, um, obviously, there's some real sick elements of that, or could be, but but it's still, it's, it's learning that uh, relationships are the reward, and pain and suffering and struggle through those relationships are the work. I would imagine, like... For the role that you play, mm-hmm. there's a there's a good balance between common sense and faith. When it, is it is it hard, um, or are there ever moments, kind of when you have to kind of wipe your hands and say I've done the best I can and walk away, especially when dealing with people. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think first of all, there's I'm not really sure there's common sense anymore. <laughs> uh, it's not so common, uh, uncommon sense. I I do think there's an interesting, I think maybe one of the most pragmatic uh, scriptures in the Bible. It's in the book of Romans. I think it's chapter 9. It says, as much as is possible, live at peace with all men. Mm. Uh, There are relational circumstances that are just not possible. Uh, It doesn't mean they're not redeemable, but you may have to step away from them uh, to let God redeem them. And uh, the idea that we can fix people is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But we can. And here's, I'll be honest with you. The thing I love the most about what I do in life is I really feel like I have a front row seat to the greatest movie ever made, mm-hmm. and it's real life. Yeah. And and the the difference for me, and this goes back to the motel days, goes back to the farm, goes back to the Navy days, uh, all of my life uh, has been a story of redemption. And the story of watching God redeem the most horrible and horrific circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he, so that's the kind of God he is. That's why we name our church Redemption Church, because he, uh, he just has this unbelievable heart to redeem us all. And there's something in all of us, because I believe we were made by him, that has a hunger and a longing for redemption. Right. Now, there are plenty of people in this world, obviously, who believe that they are self-made, that they are self-righteous, that they are self that uh, they are self-motivated and self-made uh, people, but but the truth is, uh, we are self-made, and it's not good. Mm-hmm. What we've made in ourselves is a mess, yeah. and uh, if we're honest enough to admit that, but what God does is He takes our mess and He can transform it, mm-hmm. and does. It's amazing. I've got it. We're gonna. I, I want to get more into that in a little bit. I'm gonna make a, a major shift to the right. Okay. Pastor Rogers. Great. Thanks. Now, you you made a major, major, had a major role in a major motion picture. I wouldn't say it was a major role. In 2011, a movie about four individual men trying to balance their career and family life, fatherhood more specifically. Right. How did you get involved in that movie? Well, that's an interesting story because I I wrote my doctoral dissertation on fatherhood, Mm -hmm. largely uh, because of my father and because of as a pastor, seeing the fatherlessness impact on people's lives. 
Um, a father has an impact whether he is present or absent. Mm. Now, that, that, there aren't many things in life you can say that about. So someone who grew up without a good father image um, is forever marked by that, and not always in negative ways. It marks some people. I've mm. seen men uh, overcome that by saying, I'm going to be what my father never was. So there, there's some. it's not all bad. Okay. But... What I realized was that the role of a father is critical. There's something divine about it. And what I realized was God reveals himself. God's not a man. The Bible says that he should be mocked. But God is a father. Mm. He, he didn't reveal himself as a mother. He could have, I guess, but he didn't. He said, I'm like a father to you. So what is it that's unique about a father? So I wrote my doctoral dissertation, did a lot of research on fatherhood, fatherlessness, the impact it has on crime statistics, uh, child welfare, poverty, all these different things are bound up in it. The abortion rate, all these things are impacted by men not taking their role and responsibility as fathers. And all of us have failed as dads. And, and so that was my focus. Well, I happened to be speaking at the church that the Kendrick brothers are part of, Sherwood Baptist Church, and I do a sermon called Back to the Table where I talk about uh, what it means to be a father, uh, a physical, biological, or a spiritual father, but uh, and, and the role of father uh, according to the Bible. And it's out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And what's interesting is at that time, the Kendrick brothers were working on a script. They never tell anybody what they're working on. But they pulled me aside at lunch, and they said, can we have a couple hours? I said, sure. So we sat down, and they said, uh, we can't tell you why, but you can figure, wink, wink, what we're doing. <laughs> they said, but we want to talk about your sermon. And we sat there for at least two hours. They took copious notes. They're both, by the way, brilliant writers. Mm. And they know how to tell a good story. And I gave them some research information that we had done. So we had a great time. That's the end of it. You know, I thought, wow, that's interesting. Well, they, they sent me the script, the first cut of the script. And they said, we want you to read this. But in particular, we want you to look at the grief segment and tell us if you think as a pastor that we handle the scene with the pastor well. And they said, we're going to be coming to Mobile, and we want to sit down and have dinner with you and talk, which I thought was a little odd. But I said, sure, we'll do that. I read it. I thought, man, guys, this is great. I told them, matter of fact, I told them this. I, I, said, um, I, I said, Hollywood does sin really well, and we got it down. Hollywood's got it down, I should say, uh, and, and, uh, and make, it, make it look awesome and I said, but Christian filmmakers do grief really well mm -hmm. because they deal with it at a level that isn't denial. It's bold. It's there, which is how Hollywood deals with sin. And anyway, we, uh, they sat down. They said, we came back here to this office, as a matter of fact, and they said, we want you to read the script. And that was the first time I ever had a clue that they were thinking about casting. And I told them, I said, well, I have a degree in theater. And they said, uh, yeah, let's not use that. <laughs> and they explained to me how in filmmaking, I, I got it, that the camera is so exact that it will pick up anything. Mm. And so I had to really minimize gestures. I had to be very careful and thoughtful about it. But let me just say this. I had a ball making that movie. So it was everything you like ever dreamed of? Oh, be. yeah. I'd, I'd always wanted to do film. Huh. And I still do. I mean, I, but the next one, I don't want, I'm typecast. I wanted to be one of the gang members in the say. movie. Courageous <laughs> was the name of the movie. And uh, it came out in 2011. 11, yeah. And, uh, and it, it's funny, um, I told them I want to be one of the gang members. They kind of looked at me and they said, uh, no, you're a pastor. I look like a pastor. And I looked horrible in the movie. But, <laughs> but, but what's really interesting, though, is it made me appreciate what they're doing. 
they tackle some really great subjects. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not trying to compete with Hollywood. They're just trying to tell a story, and they're yeah. good storytellers. And uh, I, was, I was proud that I could be a part of that. But I, I tell people, my next film is going to be like True Grit. I want to be a guy with a patch over his eye, gets shot off a horse. <laughs> I want to be just a bad dude, you know. And, uh, You're like, so you, can I be a cop? You're like asking me yeah. to be a cop? I'm like, no, no, we need you to be a pastor. Yeah, <laughs> right. You're like, I'm, but I'm always a pastor. I, I just look sick. <laughs> I'm not always this bad. Do I have to do the pastor yeah. part? Amazing. Even in make-believe, you still have to be a pastor. Yep. So the movie did it have? Well, that's called being typecast. So I'm, I'm afraid I am truly. <laughs> yeah, there you are. Typecast. If you ever had a question, now you know for sure. Yep. Did did it affect you personally as a father, the movie? It did, um, for a lot of different reasons. And the grief aspect was something that I was still uh, very much in the midst of. At some point, we want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. But, but my my oldest son. Um, uh, began uh, about his freshman year in college, struggling with a prescription drug addiction, mm. and um, and and that was right in the middle of all of that, and and that situation just continued to go downhill, um, and it was uh, it was a very it was a very painful uh, painful reality, mm-hmm. but but I appreciate the the Kendricks films and the way they approach film because uh, you know Christian films <laughs> have never had a good reputation. Until the last few years, yeah. and they're um, what they do. The, the, I don't think they try to be preachy. They may come across a little preachy sometimes, but but they just really try to connect with real life and where people are at. So I appreciate it. What's the hardest lesson you've had to learn being a father? Oh, I know that's a loaded question. No, it is. It, I. Or maybe this will help. If you had to give advice. To a to a to parents, young or old alike, what would be that? I would say be real with your kids. I would say don't forget that your kids are going to look at you as adults one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, be transparent as much as you as they can handle, depending on age appropriate, of course. Um, love God, struggle with them, with things. Um, be let grace rule your home, your life. Uh, don't put unrealistic expectations on your children or yourself. Uh, there is no perfect parent but God, and his kids rebelled like crazy. Uh, let me tell you, as a parent, you feel horribly guilty when you have a son or daughter who is addicted uh, or in a lifestyle that is breaking your heart. You had so many dreams for them. You had so many hopes for them, and they're just not living it. And Sometimes people do not thrive because of low expectations. Sometimes they don't thrive because of too high expectations. I think there's a real sense. I, believe it or not, my high school, my dad, who never graduated from high school, uh, had just a, an innate common sense. Uh, he, I'll never forget the day when I was getting ready to go off to college. He he hugged me. I can still feel his hug. It's the weirdest thing. I can still smell him. And it was a profound moment because basically what he said is, he said, son, I'm handing you over to God. I will not be there to monitor you. I will not be there to watch over you or take care of you. And I mean, he really did. He cut me loose. <laughs> but he told me, he said, but you will answer to the Lord mm-hmm. for good or for ill. And, and that did something in me. It was really kind of strange. It, it, it was like it put that responsibility on me uh, to be a man. But it also, uh, it was a releasing of love. And, and he, he, I knew he would love me. I knew he'd be there if I needed him. 
but I also knew it was time for me to be on my own. And I appreciate that. I, I, you know, there's one thing I would say, too, for especially young dads. I would encourage you that uh, there aren't enough ceremonies in our culture. The Jewish culture has rich, beautiful ceremonies, uh, bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs for girls, where they acknowledge uh, their adulthood. We have nothing like that mm. in the American culture. In the American culture, a six-pack of beer in your first sexual experience is your welcome. <laughs> welcome to adulthood. Thanks. Um, and, um, and so a dad is someone who really is a protector, provider, but he becomes a guide uh, that leads that child into the uncharted territory. And, I mean, they're the least equipped for it mm-hmm. in many ways, but he, he helps guide them. There comes a point where you're their mentor. And um, so I, I think there's, those are many thoughts I have about fatherhood. I think the film Courageous did a very good job of addressing a call to men to responsible fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, when, when we've, we've seen in history, I want to bring that in, in history we've seen uh, another time in American most recent history where we had a high rate of fatherlessness in the culture. It was during World War II. Now what's fascinating to me is that Prior to World War II was the Great Depression. And I'm going to make a statement. One of the most emasculating events in American history was the Great Depression. Uh, largely, the workforce was made up of males, not females. Mm-hmm. All right, And most of those men, when the Depression hit, uh, many of those men lost their jobs. And, and who didn't lose their jobs live in constant fear that they would. And, and so that did something to masculinity. And the men who lost their jobs, have you ever seen the movie Cinderella Man? Um, it, it, it paints a picture that is so tragic and clear and accurate historically of these men who couldn't get work and they would just disappear. They would become hobos. They would go out west, like from Oklahoma to California, looking for work, and then I'll come back and get my family. They never showed up again. Mm-hmm. And, and so you had this abandonment of men. Now, their children were the men who were called out to fight World War II. Mm-hmm. Now think about this. These children grew up fatherless, many of them, not all but many, and the U.S. military, the Marines, the Navy, and the, and the Army Air Corps became their father. The structure gave them, they went off and fought the greatest war. They became the greatest generation, but they didn't know how to father when they came home. Yeah. And so instead of evacuating and abandoning their families, they were there for their families, they provided for their families, but they didn't know how to give them the love and what they really needed, mm-hmm. which wasn't a new car, it, it wasn't toys, it was... It was themselves. Mm-hmm. So we, we watch this, this process of these generations. Um, and, and World War II had the highest rate of fatherlessness, but the difference was that the father came home. The problem with fatherlessness today is that there's no guarantee that he'll ever come home. Mm-hmm. So what we have is a voluntary fatherlessness with no return. And some people were quick to say, well, those guys who came back from World War II, not all of them came back. Some died. You know what's interesting? If a man, if a father dies in war, he is a hero. If a father abandons his children. Now listen to this. If a man dies in World War II, the man dies, but fatherhood lives. Mm -hmm. If a man abandons his responsibility, the man lives and fatherhood dies. And, and so what we have in this time, as I'm sitting here, is we have a culture that is suffering profoundly because men are not taking responsibility. Right. And, and I know there are other voices that say men are dangerous. 
and they are. Men without work are dangerous. Men who don't know what they're doing are dangerous. But the answer is not the age-old conflict and struggle between men and women. The answer is for men to be men Mm -hmm. and take their role of responsibility as seriously as they can. Now, obviously, there are some men who are fatherless or they're not there as fathers, and it's really beyond their power or control to stop it for whatever reason. And and I I just encourage men, turn to God uh, because he is the perfect father. You'll never be the perfect father, but you can be a much better father with his help. So what I discovered is that Jesus Christ transformed my dad from a drunk to a dad. And he, he, he transformed me from a self-centered prig to, uh, to a, a dad who cared. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a perfect dad, not a dad who did everything right. But the clarity with my children today who are all adults is that he said, well, dad, well, we knew right from wrong. We knew that we needed to work hard. We knew that uh, we knew what we believe. And it was because uh, of a mother who was a great teacher and uh, a dad that uh, she helped be better than I would have been. Yeah. So a child that comes from a broken home, what do you, what do you say to that, 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 that kid, that daughter, son? I, I, say, uh, I say that I've seen examples as a pastor of some moms who are fantastic fathers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, there's, a, there's an NFL star right now who grew up in this church. Uh, he's a professional football player who at his mother's funeral said, she taught me how to be a man. Mm-hmm. So you, you get what you get, all right? <laughs> and, and the question is what are you can do with it. I'll tell you another story. It just blew me away. This guy was on Good Morning America. I don't remember where I saw him, but he was a young guy. He'd written a book. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the book, but he was the youngest of seven boys, and his father died of cancer. And he said instinctively, at seven or eight years old, I knew I needed a dad. He said, and there's seven kids in my house. I'm the youngest of these boys. My mom was beside herself. He said, but my best friend lived across the street. He had a dad. And he said, I intentionally would go to their house, eat dinner at their house, spend the night at their house whenever they invited me. And he said, I watched that man to, to think, I need to know what a man is supposed to be. I need mm-hmm. to know what a, what a dad is supposed to be. And he oh. said, that man unwittingly taught me. Yeah. So let me tell you, coaches, uh, t-ball, clinic leaders, uh, any, anywhere you can volunteer to be with uh, young men to help them, uh, helping them find their place in life, loving them, encouraging them, being a Sunday school teacher, anytime you can invest in people, that is a, as a dad, that is a great investment. Mm-hmm. And if your children are grown, uh, your fatherhood doesn't end. Uh, you got to keep being a father. Yeah. It's interesting, in the church, we used to talk about uh, church fathers. Nobody talks about church fathers anymore. And, and it's not excluding women or motherhood, but it's saying that, uh, that it, it takes both. Mm-hmm. And what's been missing in action to a very large degree, his fatherhood. So that, again, when the when the Kendrick brothers indicated to me that they were working on a text, uh, a script on this area, it thrilled me. I thought this could this could make a difference, and I believe I believe the film Courageous did. I uh, I'd encourage anybody to watch it and be inspired, be encouraged. Now, there's a scene where, sorry, if you're hearing sound, the microphone has decided to finagle 
its way around and act funny, so we're fixing it while we talk. Uh, in the movie, there's a scene um, where someone has experienced loss. Is that right? It's been a while since I've seen it. Right. Uh, and so you're, the, main, the main character, Alice Kendrick's character's daughter, who is a 12 or 13 years old, is killed in a car accident. Right, okay. And then you're counseling him through it. Right. Um, which is a role I'm sure you've probably... As a pastor, you do. Done a lot. You, you go to crash scenes, you go to hospitals, uh, you spend time in your counseling uh, area of your office with people that are mm. broken by yeah. death and life. And um, it's, it's, it's a hard part of the work. Yeah. You... You know, um, so it's, it's you know, it, when you're playing the role that you're playing, not just in the movie, but just as a pastor, you're used to, you're seeing people daily <laughs> in and out, you know, and fixing their problems and dealing with their stuff. But like, it's kind of a shock when it gets close to home. Mm-hmm. And so um, on August 16th of 2007, you lost your late wife, right. Tammy, to a car accident. So... Do you mind sharing no, what happened that day? Well, actually, we were in this very office. Um, she was uh, taking our 13-year-old daughter, Kayla, to a cello audition at Southern Miss University, which is a town just across the state line over in Mississippi. And um, Tammy was a uh, professional oboist and a beautiful woman, amazing voice, great talent, but uh, had the best, most wicked sense of humor of any human I've ever known. <laughs> and... Uh, we'd been married, just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. And um, she uh, was taking Kayla over there, and her she'd had a flat on her car. And I'd been in a meeting, came back, and she said, I, I need to change cars with you because uh, I had a flat. And I said, that's great. Mine's safer. I'll never forget telling her that. And she took my uh, SUV, and I kissed her, and she said, I'll see you at dinner. And I never saw her alive again. Mm-hmm. Uh, about an hour later, my phone was lighting up. I was in a meeting, and I ignored it for a minute, thinking my assistant would pick it up, but I realized she had already left. I picked up the phone, and it was my daughter, um, and 13-year-old daughter, crying, and she said, Dad, we've been in a car accident. Well, I immediately said, where's your mom? Let me talk to your mom. She was, She's asleep. And as a pastor, having to do a lot of grief issues with people and, and tragedies, I knew immediately she was dead. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, she said, this man pulled me out of the car. We found out later the car had caught on fire. And uh, out of nowhere, a farmer comes up with a truck and he had a water tank on the back and he put the fire out, mm-hmm. which I'm so grateful for. And uh, this guy picked up the phone and I said, uh, I said, where's my wife? And he said, sir, you need to get here, which was my second clue. When I got there, about 34, 30 or 40 minutes later, we raced to the scene. Um, I saw a huge line of traffic. Um, and we, a friend of mine went on the other side of the road. We went up to the top of the hill where the ambulance was, where my daughter was. And I'll, I'll never forget seeing the blue tarp on the asphalt that I knew Tammy's body was under. Mm. And uh, all these helpless helpers standing around. Um, and it's, it's kind of strange how people respond at a moment like that. Of course, they're all afraid you're going to go berserk. and um, but, but I discovered something about God and all of that. Uh, he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And in that moment, when they came up to tell me what I had already figured out, um, there was a peace. Uh, it wasn't good. It wasn't, I was, it was no joy. I wasn't kicking and going, oh, life's wonderful. 
uh, it was it was about the worst experience I've ever had. Mm-hmm. But there was still a peace, and this is where the peace comes from. God is in control, and and the Bible says, interestingly enough, there is a, a there is a day appointed unto everyone. There is a uh, a calendar date that every one of us has with destiny. There's a calendar date where every one of us will die. And the Bible says it this way. It says it's appointed unto a man once to die. There's an appointment for all of us. And this was clearly Tammy's appointment. And the, the thing that really got me was there was a peace with that because what it told me was God was not off somewhere distracted. Mm. Uh, somebody asked me, a seminary student asked me about a month after her death, um, did my view of God's sovereignty, and it's a big theological football we throw at each other in, in, the, in the religious world, but did my view of God's sovereignty help or hurt when Tammy died? And I heard myself answer him. I said, yes. It utterly comforted me to know that this was not an accident, that God was in control, but it utterly devastated me that he would let me hurt that bad. Mm-hmm. So I had to wrestle both of those things at the same time. And yet, uh, I knew he was there. And let me tell you this. He, the God I serve is not the kind of God that abandons you. Now, it doesn't mean I liked it. It doesn't mean I wasn't angry at him. It doesn't mean I understood it all. It made sense and life became wonderful. Uh, I knew I was entering into something that I uh, was way above my pay grade. Mm-hmm. And I want to tell you, through it all, what I have discovered more and more is that he is the most loving powerful, creative being that has ever existed. And, and at first, people would give me books about heaven trying to comfort me, and I threw them away. Mm-hmm. I did not want to learn about heaven. I was angry about heaven. I was angry with God. And I mean, if this is how you treat people who sell out to you, what is this, you know? Mm-hmm. And yet the anger, uh, I felt a freedom from him. I felt he understood, which he does. The interesting thing about Jesus Christ is that he suffered everything that we suffer. And uh, he is acquainted with our sorrow. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said that he understands our grief. And it also says something else. It says that he is not the kind of God who snuffs out the the candle that's struggling to stay lit. Mm -hmm. He doesn't break the reed that's broken and bruised. Uh, he does just the opposite. He fans the flames, he strengthens and heals, and that's exactly what he's done in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I will tell you today, this has been eight years now, that I would not trade this new trajectory of my life if I had been given the option, knowing what I know now, I would not trade because I know him more intimately, he's more real to me. And I already believed in him. I already believed he was real. I felt like I knew him. But what he's done is he's given me himself. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, Tammy uh, and I uh, struggled in our relationship early on, but we worked through those struggles, and uh, I miss her terribly. Mm -hmm. But I know where she's at, and I know I will see her again. And that's all by the grace of God. It wasn't because she was Saint Tammy, but but she was was a person who put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes the difference. Um, I recall, because, you know, just for anybody who's listening, I worked here, so I was here during the, that time. You were surprisingly back preaching sooner yeah. than everybody anticipated you being back. Did 
did the worker be in you need to be doing something rather than sitting and thinking about it? Did you need to be busy or was it, what, 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 what made you? I, I'm not, I'm neurotic. I'm not that neurotic. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I, I feel like I, I came back too soon mm. looking back on it. I, I think I could have had some more time. Uh, I don't think it was altogether healthy for me to come back. I think some of that, I, I, I put it in some perspective, I think churches have a business into them that if we're not careful, and we pay bills like everybody else, mm. we have property like everybody else, and I think sometimes church leaders tend to get nervous that, that they're going to struggle if the key guy is out or wounded or maybe never coming back. Truthfully, after Tammy's death, I, did, I could care less if I ever preached again. Yeah. It's the only time in my life I didn't want to preach. And in some ways, forcing me back was redemptive. Uh, but I just felt like maybe I I jumped in a little too quick. Mm-hmm. But I won't. I don't regret it. I just I think I could have had some more time. But what's been interesting though is I I, I have a church that's allowed me the therapeutic freedom to be honest, mm-hmm. transparent, tell them when I'm struggling, tell them when I'm hurting. And it it was interesting too because a church is a family, and uh, it made us a better family. It made us more sensitive to people who do grieve. And, and the truth is, our people grieved. The, the pastor's wife, in many ways, and I, I've resisted this thought for years, but it's absolutely true. pastor's wife is like a mother to a lot of people in the church. Mm-hmm. And the pastor's like a father in the church. And, and I think our people genuinely grieved the loss of Tammy. Oh, yeah. And they, they felt it from my children, and they, uh, they definitely felt it from me. We were, um, that was the year our first, daughter was, our ch- first child mm-hmm. was born. And we were squeezing in our last vacation uh, before the big day came, you know, in November. And so our phones, lit, when we got in from dinner one night, we were at the beach, our phones were lighting up. And mm-hmm. so we were being told from two different people at the same time what happened and just mm-hmm. shocked. Because she was, I mean, Tammy was, was one of those people that was involved. I mean, she was leading the women's ministry. She was yeah. heavily involved in music. Uh, the weekly music meetings with her and me and Jason and everybody was some of my fa- was probably my favorite time during the week because she and I, she's so quick-witted and sarcastic, oh. <laughs> and so she and I would make jokes the whole time during the meetings, which would infuriate. D- J- you could tell Jason oh, yeah, was like yeah. trying to focus, but we just had the the most fun doing it. Listen, I, I got to be honest. One of my one of my worst griefs is the loss of my friend, and the jokes we had between us. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was. She was amazingly quick-witted, brilliant woman with an incredible taste in men. And, uh, <laughs> and she, but she, uh, she really was. She, you couldn't pull anything over. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, well, I'll be very careful. <laughs> well, in Courageous, there's a scene, and I think it's you that says you heal, but you're never the same. Right. Is that you? That's it. And, and I heard when I did hear you, you preach after her passing, it seemed that you were preaching from a different place yes. than you ever had before. I agree. So you obviously had a different take on life. Yeah, it profoundly changes you. At least it did me. I don't ever want to go back to what I was before. And what I was before wasn't horrible. I wasn't Attila the Hun. Uh, but but I was full of me. Mm. And it's interesting, too, because it, it, in that whole process, one of the things that really changed about my preaching was that I God gave me an ear for how much of my preaching was about me. Hmm. A skilled listener can tell if the speaker is consumed with themselves. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't all that skilled until Tammy's death, and it's amazing. I'd go back and listen to things I preached, and I thought, it's way too much about me, my struggles, my this, that, and the other. And uh, <laughs> I got physically ill 
and just thinking about the, the things that I would focus on. And so, yeah, God has been doing so many things. And, and I really had a sense when all this happened that not only was he with me, and, and my loneliness was devastating. And I'm going to tell you, anybody who suffered loss, anybody who's lost a, a marriage, lost a, a loved one, you know what loneliness is like, and especially uh, a marriage partner, uh, someone that you've been with for years, and they're gone, they're, de- they're dead, they're deceased. I think um, <clears throat> it's one of the most devastating. Mm. And it, it's, it does no good to compare, well, losing a child's different. It doesn't matter. Loss is loss, and your heart really can't tell the difference. But there's something about the memories. There's something about the losses that are secondary and maybe seemingly small that just overwhelm you. Mm. And one of the, the scene in the movie that I thought, and I told Alex and Stephen, I thought they did such an exceptional job on, there's a scene of their house, a simple little house in Albany, Georgia, and cars would pull up, people would take dishes in, they would come out, people would come by in suits and visit, and it was all the day of the funeral, the day before, the day after, and they did a time lapse, sun going up, down, and there's people in and out, in and out, and then all of a sudden, boom. Silence. Yeah. yeah, because reality is that's where you're at. And then they show you the depth of the brokenness of the people. They're stuck. I can't tell you how many homes I've walked into after the loss of a child where the people were just sitting in front of a television with no words. And there's no engagement. It's just so painful. No wonder a lot of marriages will, will suffer and sometimes even separate because of the loss of a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the pain is unbearable. What I discovered was that God um, is present. Uh, a, a very famous author or uh, writer, um, Elizabeth Elliot, wrote a book called The Pathway of Loneliness that really spoke into my struggle and my, my brokenness and my grief. She said that when her husband Jim, who was a missionary, martyred, in the late 1950s in South America, um, that uh, that when she lost him, she felt the terrible loneliness. She said, but God reminded me that sometimes when Jim was alive, I would feel lonely. Mm-hmm. And that helped me. I thought, you know, there's times, Tammy's nickname in the house was uh, 10 o'clock Tammy. She had had a, a, a bout with viral encephalitis as a child. Mm-hmm. And the doctor said, we don't know why, but it usually affects people in some way. Well, it seemed to affect her in that she would uh, just run out of energy at 10 o'clock. Boom, she's done. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she'd climb into bed at 10 o'clock. It was time for Tammy to go to bed. And uh, made her lives interesting, but it was, it, was, um, it was funny. There were a lot of times I would, I'm a late night person, so I'd want to talk. Something I'd learned or discovered, and she'd be over there asleep. And I felt a sense of loneliness. Turns out, the loneliness that we feel is a loneliness for God. Mm-hmm. Because having the best marriage and being married to the greatest person in the world is it, not going to last because we die. Yeah. But God doesn't. He died once on the cross for us. He'll never die again. And so what we have is the potential of a relationship with God. And, and I know even hearing that for so many people is just like, that's bizarre. I mean, think about that. He, you can't see him or touch him. But, but in reality, you can. He's ever-present and he's there. And, and the reality is he's become the greatest friend to me. A- after Tammy's death, I still travel and speak places. I, when I go to a hotel, I never turn on the television. I, I, I just, I, as soon as I can, I go to bed and I talk to God. And, and, and I talk to him, people think I'm crazy. Good thing is, with uh, cell phones and people talking all the time, you never know if they're on the phone or not. I don't look as crazy as just anybody else. So, uh, but, 
but it is truly uh, a friendship that has grown, and uh, which is what I think God wants it to be for us. Um, what do you say to someone who is struggling, lost a loved one? Mm. I, 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 my, my, the, the answer is, and I know we live in a world that it's, it's expected to say there are many roads, you can take any road you want. They're dead ends. I think there's only one road, and I think that road is the God who understands suffering. Because you know what? You can be mad at God. You can. He can handle it. Mm-hmm. You can be mad at God and say, God, I don't know why you took them, why this, why that. But really, when you think about it and you're honest, that's self-centered. Why, why do you let me hurt that bad? Well, people are hurting all over the world that bad and, and worse. But, but there's no God that I've ever been able to find who actually came and suffered what we suffer. He died. He's tasted death for everyone, the Bible says. So we have someone who understands what we're going through. Mm-hmm. We need each other. Don't misunderstand me. We need the church. We need family. We need people who come alongside and, and care about us. But they're, what they can give us is limited. Mm-hmm. And, and like when I was a kid, if my puppy got killed, my dad would come and say, let me get you another puppy. <laughs> you don't just go out and remarry mm-hmm. because that's not going to satisfy them. That's going to open a whole new can of worms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've done it, so I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, but we're here. That's the that's the interesting part of this story. I believe God is superintending my life. I believe He's sovereign over my life and my decisions and where He leads. And um, interesting thing about four years before Tammy died, there was a pastor in Denver, Colorado, named Rick Ferguson. And uh, Rick and uh, his wife Kathy had a, a tremendous ministry there. I knew of Rick, but I wasn't a friend. But his reputation uh, was clear. Matter of fact, I used to, he, he would sell some of his sermons on the site uh, that I would go to for research information. And I, you know, I wasn't stealing sermons, but I was paying for them. And, and I would, I would, and he wrote the most incredible detailed stuff. So he was a rich resource. I had a lot of his sermons. Well, he was killed in a car accident. And, um, and Kathy and he had three children, just like Tammy and I did. Mm-hmm. And I remember when it happened. I remember we prayed for him and, Rick and I had a lot of the same friends, but when Tammy died, someone connected one of our staff members to talk to Kathy from what she had experienced. Well, that started a relationship with that staff member who had her come in and speak one time to our women's ministry. And lo and behold, we met. And uh, several years ago, we were married. And uh, we started a whole new trajectory of our lives together. And uh, it's been interesting. Uh, it's been exciting. It's been challenging because, uh, you know, it's one thing to get married at 21. It's another thing to get married at 51 mm-hmm. or 50. And and so when you go through that, it's a, there's a huge learning curve, and it's not what you think it's going to be. But it turns out to be God's wonderful grace in our lives because I have a friend who understands. The grief. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it freaks a lot of people out because they come in. We're so used to a divorce culture where you don't talk about your... You come into our house, you see pictures of Rick, you see pictures of Tammy, and, and, and it's because we love them. We still love them. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to stop loving them. Yeah. And there's a freedom in that. And uh, it's, it's, it's really quite wonderful. Yeah. What, I, just, I think it's special. I mean, obviously, we all keep, each other, keep up with each other um, over Facebook long distance. So right. I love that every year, either on her birthday or something, you feel the freedom to be able to post a picture and, and post a sweet post about Tammy right. and that she under and that Kathy understands that and then likewise you understand that about, you know, her grief with Rick and 
Absolutely. So it's a, a special, you know, it's funny, like the whole redemption thing. You just rename, you guys here at the church just renamed it from mm-hmm. First Baptist North Mobile to Redemption because you guys are planning churches and doing other right. things outside of North Mobile. But it's funny how the common thread of redemption just runs through your whole story. Yeah. And, and who would have thought that it would have happened with your marriage, you know? Oh, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It really is amazing. And I, I can see God's hand. And, and by the way, none of that takes an ounce of pain away. But, but here's what's interesting. You learn to love certain writers. C.S. Lewis understood pain. He understood suffering and the loss of his wife and a grief observed. But he, he makes an interesting statement about what heaven's going to be like. By the way, my repulsion of heaven changed. And, and I started reading and researching and studying. I'm telling you, it's one of the most fascinating subjects in the world. And, and we don't have enough good material uh, on heaven. It's real. Now, I know there's a book like that, but some of it becomes fantasy of what this person thinks, what that person thinks. If you just look at what the Bible teaches about heaven, it's, it's mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't have time to deal with that. But it, C.S. Lewis said, in heaven, which is the ultimate garden that God made us for, and we started in a garden with perfection, no sin. Sin entered the picture. We entered into a time of suffering. Christ came in the middle of history, redeemed us from our suffering and sin, and ultimately, we're going back to a garden. And right now, uh, it's just getting his message out to as many people as possible that God wants you there. So we get there. He said in heaven, um, the people who have avoided suffering in life will regret it. Hmm. He said, because, because what we hurt and suffer with here shapes us and makes us for something there. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, it will it will be more glorious for having been so painful. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What a powerful thought. Yeah. And, and I, I tell people, we don't glorify suffering. Never do we glorify suffering. Uh, but, but we can glorify God, that only God can take our worst mess-ups, our worst tragedy, and transform them into his glory. And it's bizarre. We didn't look for this. Kathy and I neither looked for this. We both have... Um, I think both Tammy and Rick were the same age. We had both celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. They were both killed, I think, on a Thursday. They, they, um, uh, there's so many, con- there's so many things. Their, their death certificates both have the exact same Amazing. cause of death, and that's morbid. And that's not kind of, we don't sit around talking about that all the time. But I, I throw that out only to say, it it really makes you think there's something more mm. than what we, than what we typically experience. Goodness. But. But again, Kathy would tell you the same thing. Um, we, uh, God gives us the gift of tears. If you find yourself crying a lot, we were talking about running. I love to run. I don't have the body of a runner, but I love to run. Uh, and largely because it, it keeps me off antidepressants. It, it, it uh, really does. I, the, the natural endorphins are, are wonderful. Um, it lets me eat more, I think. Uh, you know, I'm deceiving myself. But I... Um, there's a, you can run and weep. And I, we talked about that earlier. And I do thank God for the natural ways he's given us to endure our grief. But the supernatural way is what people need. Mm-hmm. And they need to know that there's someone in charge. There's someone who cares about them. There's someone who has not abandoned them. There's someone who has a hope and a plan for them. Mm-hmm. And that someone is very real. Um, we're kind of kind of wrapping, getting close to the end, just so you'll know, because I know you're, you're a busy man. But uh, I wanted to touch on, on faith because you're a pastor, mm-hmm. and um, 
And well, actually, I'm a pastor because I have faith, not, <laughs> okay. not the other way around. Okay. So, uh, I don't remember what year it was, but the monument of the Ten Commandments in Montgomery, right? Yeah. Was it Montgomery? Yeah. That was a whirlwind for you, wasn't it? It um, was, yeah. Why, why was that a fight worth fighting for you? Well, uh, uh, not really sure. It totally was. I've oftentimes... Um, uh, face some windmills, uh, but no, th- I think overall that's a serious fight. But I'm not sure uh, the way it was, the way that it was uh, fought, was the best. Mm-hmm. And we may have been beyond that. I, I believe this nation was founded by people who had a uh, a Reformation mindset. Doesn't make them all born again Christians. Doesn't make them all committed, devoted followers of Christ. Although many of them were, by their own writings. Um, we're told today that most of our founders were atheists and deists. If they were, they were lousy atheists and lousy deists. Mm-hmm. Even when you read Benjamin Franklin, Franklin at the Constitutional Convention makes it very clear that there's a God superintending. If he's a deist, he doesn't believe that. Right. So he's a jackleg deist at best. But he's he's telling the people, listen, there's if this could country couldn't exist if it wasn't for God. Mm-hmm. Now that same now understand something. I, I am Baptistic. I'm a Baptist. And I will tell you that I believe in religious liberty. That means that I, the same liberty I'm afforded to preach the gospel, live my faith out, and without fear, I believe also should be given to other people who don't agree with me. Mm-hmm. And so that's the nature of the freedom we have. I do believe one of the most frightening and chilling points of history is where we're at right now, that actual free thought and uh, about your religious convictions and everything else are endangered. You know, people are afraid to speak. They're afraid yeah. to speak what they believe. And uh, unless it's some radical, strange new belief system, and and so we have to we have to find the courage to lead. We have yeah. to find the courage to stand and pay the consequences if necessary. Well, so the, the Ten Commandments, I believe, are foundational. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're foundational in the minds of our founders, uh, of even those who believed in natural law. Uh, they were not only historically in place from the time of Moses, um, and, and you can try to say they're equal to the Code of Hammurabi and others ancient. And every culture had its codes. That's the nature of culture. But the Ten Commandments are unique because they identify the existence of a God and our accountability to him. Which, by the way, you can by force make people do certain things. But ultimately, it's their conscience that makes them good citizens and good people. So the removal of the Ten Commandments, I think, was a, a freak of our culture that trying to throw off any semblance of religion, thinking religion's the problem. I will say this, in the name of religion, a lot of problems exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing that even today with uh, radical forms of religion around our world, that in the name of God, people are cutting people's heads off and threatening other people. Uh, it's just another form of totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, only Jesus taught to love your neighbors and mm-hmm. to love your enemies. Mm-hmm. That's a radical thought when no. you think about it. He told us to love ISIS. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we let ISIS do what they want? I don't think so. But it means that we, we realize that ISIS has a problem, and, and the solution is Jesus. It's radical in the sense you think for Christians or people like-minded, it's hard enough for us to love even one another. You right. know? Right. So the idea of loving somebody who hates you is just perturbed. Or, you know, well, it's, it's so weird. <laughs> it's, not, it's not normal. Yeah. It's just not normal. It's supernatural. Who would give you that kind of love? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't possess that kind of love, uh, naturally. But but I know it's commanded, and I know Jesus modeled it. Mm-hmm. So 
so how do we do it? How do we deal with that? And that's that's where I think the conscience has to be free. Mm-hmm. And when we lock up the Ten Commandments and say they can't be displayed, while a block away at the federal building there's an image of the Greek god of justice, come on. I mean, you're going to worship something. Religion cannot be put in a vacuum. Okay, there's this culture where the, everybody's pluralistic and everybody believes what they want to believe, but nobody... Listen, there is respect for religious liberty, but but something's going to dominate. Mm-hmm. And there is no vacuum. It's going to... Something's going to dominate. And, I mean, you can take the Ten Commandments out of the schools. They used to be taught in schools. used to be hung on the schoolhouse wall. And then what you're left to is a committee of people saying, well, you know what? We've got kids killing each other. Let's say, we're, let's not let's not kill. Yeah. We have people stealing from each other. Lunchbox. Okay, here's a rule. Don't don't steal. Yeah. Well, well dude, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, you're reinventing the will when it's already there. Yeah. So. But I do understand, too. We're in an increasingly pluralistic society. There's no doubt about it. What, what modern Christians have to do is we have to learn how to joyfully present the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture that uh, increasingly uh, doesn't understand mm-hmm. the God we serve or who, who we are or who we're supposed to be. How do you, how do, you do that? It's challenging. <laughs> I, I think you have to teach it, preach it, and you have to live it. I think you, you have to challenge your people to engage the culture and not hide from it. What will kill the modern American church is building fortresses that we hide out, point our fingers at the bad people on the outside, and we will die there. We'll die inside those fortresses, and they will become mini malls, and they'll become... Home Depots. Do you think that that's what's given us, uh, has given you know the church, the Christians, a bad rap? Is that we kind of have, kind of secluded ourselves, and you know it's like we we talk about missions, but we think about missions being Africa rather than being right outside our front door, right. and and helping people. Have we become a country club, and we're, we're now needing to kind of yeah, in some cases yeah, we become that. country clubs, and other places we're far from a country club. Yeah. Uh, you know, I told my people, I said, if we're a country club, I'm sending you all a bill for your dues. <laughs> uh, no, we're a voluntary organization. We're not a country club. But, uh, yeah, I think country clubs, but I think sometimes a little power thiefdoms. Mm. Some people get a kick out of controlling people. Yeah. And, uh, and so the job of the church is to engage the culture with the gospel, which means our people have to be in the streets. They have to be in the schools. You know what? I can sit around and preach against how bad our schools are, or I can get off my but and go help paint a school, get mm-hmm. it ready, love the people, tutor kids, help people. And then I'm a part, I'm a citizen, I'm a part of the community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting, throughout the Old Testament, and this is repeated in the New Testament, God always calls his people to love the city. And he calls Daniel. Daniel's in exile in a foreign land, and he tells him to love the city that he's in. So wherever you find yourself listening to this podcast, God called you to love that city. Make it a better place. Hmm. And and so I think the greatest, the, the, the problem, you hit the nail on the head, is that churches are, are locking down and hiding out and watching too much of certain news programs, and they're not seeing the big, bright, wonderful world. And when they see somebody dressed in a burqa at Sam's, they get nervous. Yeah. They go, oh, I don't know, who, what, what are they doing here? Are they going to terrorize us? Love them. Yeah. Love them. Engage them. Find yeah. out. You know what? And maybe you'll wind up winning a terrorist to Christ. And, or winning them to God's love or making them rethink. Uh, and as long as, we, as long as we isolate from each other, uh, we're going to continue to be enemies. Yeah. So if people ultimately want like hope, freedom, fulfillment, uh, why, um, why reject like, that which has been believed to bring the most satisfaction, the most peace to our lives? Why do people do that? Why do people push something away that's meant to be good for them? You know? 
you're talking about Christianity. Pushing Christianity like away. Why, why, you know, it's been, you know, for so long, you know, as, as anyone can remember our history tells, and then obviously the life of Christ and the Bible, like, it's it's meant to redeem, redemption. It's meant to help, and, well, and yet but, we push it away. So. But let's just be honest, too. I, I flew on a plane to Nashville on Monday and sat next to a guy who is European, and we got to talking about this. He's about your age, young dad. And uh, real nice guy, very engaging, and, and I, I got to share the gospel with him. And he told me, he said, I grew up in a certain church. He said it was full of rules. He said, I, I haven't been back there in a long time. Now I have a little daughter. I wanna, I'm want i thinking about taking her back so she can choose whether or not she wants it. I think she at least needs to know about it. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I shared with him that that's what happens with religion. Mm-hmm. Religion makes rules and tries its best to control the behavior of people. Uh, religion is man-made relationship is God made. Mm. God made you for himself. You didn't create him. He made you. And and so responding to him on a personal level is what is transformative. That's where the power comes from. That's what makes us better entrepreneurs, better workers, better husbands, better wives, better lovers, better fathers, neighbors. And, and, and the reason we gather together because Jesus commanded us to be a church, not to go to church, but mm. to be it is to have relationships with other people that are, are problematic. And, and you know, you have to work through your stuff. But what you find is the hardships and the difficulty of working through it make you better people, better mm-hmm. friends, because he wants us to infect the community with his love. Yeah. Do you think that we've been preaching the wrong thing as oh. a church? We've been preaching more don't the don't do this. Yes. Don't do that rather than preaching the solution who you you know who is Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, we've been preaching it the wrong way. Sometimes we've been preaching the wrong things. We've been telling people moralism. We've been telling them how to be good Southerners or how to be good Americans mm-hmm. and and how to be better neighbors and better things. But it's all moralistic because it's self-centered. What's in it for you? What's in it for me? And and the the gospel is that God found you, God sought you, God loved you, God redeemed you, God died in your place. And, and by the way, let me define the gospel. The gospel says basically this, I am more wicked than I could ever imagine, but God is more loving and gracious than I could ever hope or dream. Mm-hmm. And so those two things are both realities. You can get defended and say, I'm not wicked, so-and-so is really wicked. That's the problem. We look at other people and we see how bad they are and we feel better about ourselves. Right. Duh, that doesn't... That doesn't help, mm. uh, but it may make you temporarily feel better. And you can always compare yourself to somebody else, but it's very foolish, the Bible says. At the end of the day, it's not the amount of sin that condemns our souls. It's the fact of sin mm. that's infected all of my DNA. So I need a Savior. I need a Redeemer. Mm. The good news is we have one. Yeah. Um, I don't know of another religious leader that sacrificed himself on the cross or died the kind of horrendous death he did in our place. And the Bible says if you call upon him, uh, that he will save you. He will save you. Do you think uh, in our egocentric sort of uh, culture, I guess, and it's not necessarily meant to have a negative aspect, it's just kind of the way we're wired as human beings, do you think that faith is a difficult idea because it means letting go of our control, you know? Like sure. Come in terms with the fact that we're not in control and that's just so hard for people. Like, we want to improve. That's why there's so much self-improvement. And right. we want to work out and have great bodies and have great whatever. And it's hard to let go of the idea of there's someone else in control here. Right. Is it that? Do you think that's a hard... I think a lot of times that's it. I think it's not always that. I think some of us feel unworthy. Mm-hmm. Some of us feel like we've messed up so bad. Some of us feel like we're hopeless. Some of us doubt even the existence of God. 
And how could God, uh, how could these bad things happen? Where's God? Why, why doesn't he just end it all and stop it all? Mm-hmm. But, but you've got to understand that when you come to that point, you have to say, well, wait a second, he did something. And he being God would have to know more than I do. Mm-hmm. And so, so the deal is, why did he do what he did? Why did he send his son, born of a virgin, live a sinless life, die on the cross as our substitution? Why did he do that? Except that he knew the end from the beginning that that was the solution. The problem is my sin has separated me from God. And Jesus removed that sin barrier. Mm-hmm. So the only thing standing between me and God is my will to say, okay, I receive it as a gift. Now, God, do what you want in my life. It goes mm-hmm. back to my very story of that First Avenue and Grant Road sitting there. It was a time to surrender to him. Yeah. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of reasons why people... Uh, you know, and, and the worst thing I think you can do is sit around and say, well, everybody thinks this, everybody, these people think that. I don't know what the truth is. We'll see when we get there. Uh, that could be too late. Mm. There, there, there is a reason and a responsibility for this life, and we will be held accountable for it. The question is, with what you know, what are you, what are you doing with what you know? Mm. And, and I believe uh, God will hold us accountable. Kind of wrap it up here. Uh, the name of the podcast is called Alive because I believe that most people are in pursuit of trying to make the most of their lives in any way, shape, or form, or whatever that looks like for them. When do you, Ed Litton, feel most alive? Hmm. That's a good question. I feel most alive when I'm doing what I believe God made me to do. Mm. I feel most alive when I am telling people that there's hope mm. and uh, that Life is full of tragedy and triumph. It's full of joy and pleasure. But at the end of the day, all of those make lousy gods. Uh, The only thing, the only one who is worthy is the one who made it all. And that God revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you will at least give him the benefit of the doubt and say, all right, I'm going to read him, I'm going to listen to him, I'm going to seek after him, you will you you may discover what I've discovered, hmm. and I would encourage you to at least give him the benefit give of the doubt. Shot. Our successes or lack thereof are, are closely related to the great power of habit. Hmm. So, what are some healthy habits that you've embraced over your life? Well, it's absolutely true. You, there have to be certain disciplines to make progress, it, whether it's saving dollars, pennies into dollars whether it's how you use your time and manage your time and not be managed by your Time's time. Time's a big one. I'm, it's I'm huge. learning. It's huge. Self-discipline, exercising, eating as best you can, doing mm-hmm. what you can, and, and except for the meal that I uh, seduced Forced you into. Forced down my throat. <laughs> yes, the chicken that I made you eat. Um, even though that, you know, it was a, hell, it was a good chicken, had a good life. <laughs> it was good. Um, the, um, uh, so there are habits. I, I think for me the most, uh, the best habits have been uh, my time with God, and investing in people, uh, making time for people, especially the people that are most important to us. Mm-hmm. But other people too. The stranger is important. Uh, and having time, uh, developing the habit of uh, patience with people. It doesn't come natural. But, uh, but always remembering that, uh, th- that people have been patient with you and that you need to be patient with others. I, where we're at in the Deep South, also racial reconciliation has become a huge issue for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and to know that uh, that I've got brothers and sisters that are very different from me, but boy, they are teaching me, and I'm learning from them. I'm learning how to love God mm-hmm. in different ways, and it's it's good. It's real good. Any habits you've had to remove? Oh yeah, a lot of self uh, condemnation, a lot of self doubt oh. mm-hmm. uh, that I have to wrestle with. I have to. I had to learn how to. I'm not sure I've removed it. I'm sure 
I don't think I removed it. I do think I've had to learn how to subjugate it. I learned how to arrest it, see it, identify it when it talks its head up. Mm. If somebody, uh, I'm, I, I will have an anger issue if I feel like somebody's slighting me, criticizing me un, unfairly. Um, and, but a lot of that I've seen great success in, um, and I tragically even be, since Tammy's death. Uh, I've learned to be, I find myself being more patient and loving, even in the face of people who have been nasty. Mm. And, and so, yeah, I, I would say most of mine has been bad self-talk, um, and um, negative stuff, uh, beating myself up. That's good. I, I need to uh, remove that one as well. Best advice you've ever been given? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Too much, huh? Yeah, I've been given a lot of advice, <laughs> and I probably didn't heed it. Um, my dad's best advice is marrying a woman 10 years younger than him because <laughs> my mother took care of him until the day he died, and that was smart. Um uh, don't start a land war in South Asia is another good piece of advice I got. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what else? Um, that's that's good. That's funny. Worst advice? You, you ever been given bad advice? Oh, boy. You don't uh, have to name names if, if anything jumps out. Well, there's a few things about bell bottoms. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm just trying to... <laughs> Uh, th- it's a very good question. I, I guess I need to think a little bit more on it. Um, um, uh, oh, yeah, buying a house one time um, was really bad advice in this particular situation. Mm-hmm. It was funny. Here's, the, here's the, uh, I'll sum it up. Tammy and I both, it was our first house, and uh, this guy had a great deal. We weren't looking for it. it he, this guy kind of pushed us into it. And uh, when we went to pay for it, we both knew it wasn't right. There was mm-hmm. something not right. And that's called peace or not having peace. And in this case, it was a something inside us going, warning, warning, don't do this. And we did it anyway. And it was a huge disaster. It was terrible. Uh-huh. caused trouble for us for a long time. But I will say, uh, when you don't have peace to do something, uh, trust that peace yeah. or the lack thereof. You've got a lot of books. Yeah. Favorite. Favorite two or three books. Well, the Bible yeah. uh, is living. It's active. And it, it still, it never ceases to amaze me. I, I encounter God every day in his word. And I'm just blown away by him. He's, he's so real, and it's, even, I mean, I've studied the original languages of Hebrew and Greek that it's mostly, some of it's written in Aramaic, but but it's just amazing to me uh, how accurate it is, how powerful it is. It's different from any other books on these shelves because it's living. Uh, God's working in it. But I, I would say uh, C.S. Lewis has had a huge impact on me. Mm-hmm. Um, the Great Divorce, uh, Grief Observed. Uh, I think uh, Char- uh, uh, I think Francis Schaeffer, How Shall We Then Live, mm. helped me understand more than anything else Western culture, how we got to where we're at, why we're where we're at. Uh, and it's really an interesting book because it's about um, what art says. Uh, I love art. And he looks at the Middle Ages up through the modern period, and he shows how art has grown and developed and how it expresses the highest cultural value. And uh, and so it's it's a tremendous book. How shall we then that. live? I've never heard of that. It sounds like a great book. It's a great philosophical book, but it's not written that way. It's yeah. it's not a hard read at all. Chuck Colson is one of my favorite writers. Uh, I was president of the Pastors Conference of the SBC Southern Baptist Convention a couple of years ago, and he was one of my speakers before he died. Mm. Chuck Colson was a brilliant man mm. and a great uh, example of God's grace. He was one of the conspirators in the Watergate. Went to prison for it, but that's where he came to faith in Christ. 
It's a great story. You need to read it. Have mentors played an important role in your life? Huge. Um, men and women, but men primarily who have invested in my life. Pastors. My pastor in Tucson, Ron Hart, is still a mentor in my life. I'm at an age now where I'm, I'm mentoring some guys, but I'm being reverse mentored by young men who have tremendous passion for God and passion for good. And it, uh, it's, it's young guys that are pastoring in some really hard places. So I'm, I'm enjoying being reverse mentored. Our staff has become very young in the last few years. And uh, these guys have so much life, they keep me on my toes. Mm. And uh, I've become a huge Crowder fan. Um, uh, I, love, I love anything that's rockabilly hard. And um, I, I just, I'm absolutely loving working with two young worship pastors who, uh, they, they'll just do whatever I ask them to do. Yeah. And we're having a good time. Anyway, we're going to do a Bruce Springsteen version of This Little Light of Mine. Oh, my gosh. Next Sunday. It's going to be awesome. Man. Yeah, I've got to tape it. You really, I mean, I'll send you something with it because it's, it's, it's going to be awesome. I'm excited. Do you have any regrets? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think you can live without regrets. Mm. I, 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 I thought I could avoid them. Um, but I, I think the difference is you don't, you don't drown in your regrets. Right. If you drown in them, uh, you don't learn the lessons from them. A, a regret is a tool to, to really help you uh, continue to sharpen your life and say, uh, you know, I can't do it over. There's no time travel. Mm. And, um, uh, but I can, I can, by God's wisdom, I can gain wisdom and grace through this. I love that. I've been learning a lot um, that perspective is everything. It is. And um, we can, you can look at difficult th- things or dumb things you've done as, well, that was dumb, so stupid. And, you know, like you talked about, Laga downing, drowning in your, like, self absorbed frustrations or mm. guilt or whatever, or you can look at it as great opportunity to learn something and, and improve upon. You know, I, I think one of my great regrets would be the loss of a friendship mm. that uh, I thought I was doing right, and I still don't know if I did right or if I was just foolish. It's probably a mixture of both. But I, I confronted a friend with a very painful problem um, that I felt like he needed to know, mm. and he rejected me because of it. And that, that really has, uh, has been a hurtful situation. But I've learned to trust God for it. Hmm. And I've learned that, you know, no matter, with, with Christ, let me tell you the truth, anything can be redeemed. Hmm. And so my confidence isn't in my friendship or my ability, but my confidence is that Christ can redeem it. Yeah. I just don't know how or when. Yeah. And it's not my job to make it happen. Yeah. Um, it's, it's my job to trust Him for it. But, but it's interesting, too. I'd say most of the pain in life is relational. Because most of the joys in life are yeah, relational. Absolutely. And and so we we can grow through those um, and, and hopefully be the people God wants us to be. Just a few more things. Okay. Um, what do you want to most be remembered for? <laughs> um, I would have answered that much differently a few years ago. Um, I don't think I have to be remembered. Okay. I, I used to think I did. I mm-hmm. wanted to be remembered. I'll never forget, I, I was sharing the gospel one day with a lawyer, a very, very successful lawyer in Texas, and I asked him about what he would say to God if he stood before him and, and about his life. And he said, well, he said, I just want to be remembered as a good man. And I said, so well, let me get this straight. You want to build your eternal destiny on people's memories? I said, most people do not remember who won the Super Bowl last year. 
Uh, most people don't remember who was president at the turn of the 20th century. And so why would you put all of your hopes and dreams on people's memories? Now, I understand what he meant. He wants to make an impact on people. Uh, I'm not sure even the greatest among us make that big of an impact. Mm. But there's the impact of Jesus Christ. that I, uh, That's what I want people to remember. I want people to remember what he did for me, what he did for them on the cross. Yeah. And, and I have a feeling that I may wind up being remembered, if that was even my goal, more for that than anything else. Because mm. the people I remember, like Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Dwight L. Moody and Billy Graham, were people who, who gave their lives so that others would know him. Mm. Um, clearly, I'm not here a lot anymore. I live in Nashville. You're in Mobile. And so I only see you once a year, once every two years. I put my head in for five minutes say hello. But you're the, um, you, um, just so everybody's listening, you were my boss for about four and a half years. That was fun. I didn't answer directly to you, but I, I, you were my boss. Well, I'll never forget the day that uh, our worship pastor, that you was your boss, uh, you, I was at a prayer meeting at like 6 in the morning, and you were out in front, and I saw oh, you. Oh, this was prior to me working here, but I do remember what you're talking about. Yeah, you, I remember <laughs> you, you threw the knapsack in the back of a truck, and you threw your guitar back there, and you said, hey, tell my boss that I'm going away for a week. I'm going, dude, I'm not telling him anything. <laughs> you're on your own. First off, kid, I don't know you. Second off. <laughs> but that was a great impression. Oh, my gosh. That was awesome. Tell and to on. see, but to, honestly, to see, and that's been a joy here because we're right next door to a university, and we've always been engaged with a lot of students. But to see these guys come in so young and immature but so ambitious and to watch what they become. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're an amazing example of, of how God puts that passion and then matures that passion. Yeah. Well, he's still got a lot to work, work, work on. But, um, but, I mean, you counseled me and my wife huh. before we got married. And then you married us. And then you actually dedicated our first child huh. to the Lord. And so I was obviously here more than than I am now, but I'm able to watch you from a distance. Thank God for social media. And so I just wanted to tell you thank you. Um, and I wrote all this down because I'm not this eloquent, but I want to say thank you for being a leader and an inspirer and an encourager and a man of hope, serving your community, for advocating solutions, for exemplifying love for your family, uh, for your friends and the people that you lead, and openly and authentically sharing your story with me today on my first mm-hmm. podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, Chris, I'm honored. Thank you so much. And I'm honored by what you just said. Thank you. Absolutely. So you have one minute left on this earth. The plane's going down or the podcast is about to end. What are your famous last words? <laughs> my famous last words is make sure you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's awesome. Because there's there's no other way. Pastor, thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, sir. We're coming alive. We're coming alive.